Hi, I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein we introduce each other to films, expand our cinematic horizons, and, in essence, catch up on our cinema. So, it is the month of May 2021, and the theme that we had prepared for y'all went right out the fucking window, so we're just doing a free-for-all this month. Uh, So don't expect any sort of tonal consistency between each product from week to week. Fucking deal with it. (laughs) Um, That being said, uh, in joining me in our movie review for this week, I have my good buddy Harrison uh, from the Grief Burrito podcast. How's it going, Harrison? Hey, dude. Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing amazing. (laughs) Amazing. That's wonderful to hear. (laughs) Yeah. I'm curious, Harrison, mm. where are your hype levels uh, this, this evening, uh, being as you're in the UK? Well, I just ate a roast dinner, which in, in the UK, in the north of England, I don't know if you do roast dinners in America, I know you do Thanksgiving dinner. In England, a roast dinner is a Thanksgiving dinner every single Sunday. And that's how much we eat, <laughs> where gravy is thick in the north and dark, like our many, many moons in the evenings. It's great, basically. I'm feeling good, but that's it. clogged arteries it's a uh, uk tradition it is yeah yeah we don't live long in the north (laughs) no that that still sounds awesome though Um, it's quite a bit better than the frozen horse shit i probably had last night and we'll likely have again tonight Um, consistent that being said uh, so thank you so much for joining me today harris no worries i I called you in in a pinch and uh, you Mm -hmm. you are here to deliver uh, so Harrison, uh, yes. being as you are our esteemed guest for this mm. week on Catching Up on Cinema, uh, what film uh, did you select for us to review this week? I selected, at, the, at being shot down of six other films, like we said, that I sent you over, slid across the table and you were like, no, no, just like cast them all off. We are going to be watching The Fifth Element by Luc Besson. Luc Besson. Luc Besson. From France. The French is Very French. Very yes. eccentric. Uh, but he is oftentimes a very talented director. He is. Um, but yeah, thank you for sharing those details about the selection process for the film. <laughs> I thought the <laughs> so listeners deserved we to disco- know. We discovered a little bit of a uh, interesting connection uh, between my usual co-host Kyle and Harrison here, and that seems that they are apparently kindred spirits uh, when it comes to their their taste in cinema. Soulmates. Uh, because, it, yeah. No doubt. Uh, you guys need to get together and, and do some form of Kiss. review together. <laughs> Maybe even sans me, mm. uh, because the two of you uh, are basically the same person, at least in terms of <laughs> cinematic diets. Um, yeah, uh, Harrison picked all of Kyle's sacred cows. Um, so I, I, I had to slash my way through them and basically pick the least sacred of said cows yeah. uh, in the form of the fifth element, because um, all things Kubrick... Uh, all things George Lucas, um, pretty much anything prestige sci-fi or um, Lovecraftian horror that that belongs to Kyle yeah. on catching up on cinema. So I will I will not touch those properties without him. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about the Fifth Element from 1997. And uh, aside from me shutting down all of your other suggestions, Harrison, uh, were there any other reasons as to why you selected this film? It's a movie that uh, I feel you know it. You know, in your early life, you have moments that sort of get crystallized in whether it's cinema, in music or games. There's certain beats that you can always remember that you hit growing up. This is definitely one for me because I remember it was one of the earliest sci-fi action films that I watched with my dad. Like he let me stay up and we sat on the sofa together and we watched it. And it was like, oh, this is cool. Like I I can really appreciate sci-fi from 
sitting watching this film. And I think it really tied in that my dad kind of looked like Bruce Willis and it was like, oh, father figure, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so that's why. Wow. No, that, that's, that's really cool. Like that, that is certainly a precious memory. You know, mm-hmm. the, the thing that your dad let you stay up for. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure we all have things like that. I'm pretty sure I did that with my dad in some of the Rocky films at some point. Nice. Um, I know he did that with uh, John Carpenter's The Thing, which, if uh, memory serves, I think you guys... Have yes. you talked about that on the Grief Burrito We show? have, yeah. We did during our Halloween months. So at, we used to do a spooky episode every single month. So we do. it was the third episode. It was the spooky burrito episode. But for the whole month of October, we like to have all four episodes through the month as a spooky episode. And then we have guests on each week and we all watch one of the famous horror films and then do a horror game as well. And Jordan, my lovely co-host, has seen three films in his life. That is it. So we were going through the classics. So we watched Alien, which he absolutely hated, which he gets a lot of stick for. Uh, We watched The Thing. We watched uh, the original Terminator, I think. And I can't remember the last one. Oh, The Shining. A lot of these going on. There was a lot of the films uh so yes we have done the thing and it's one of my all-time favorite again my dad bought that on video i think and i remember watching that on my little tv in my room i watched that on my own and that was that was an experience as being a young kid i'll tell you that oh yeah that movie uh got me at at a particular age i think Mm. i was maybe 10 maybe 11 uh, when i first saw it I, i think i saw it in a in a fun way though not in okay. an absolutely terrifying way, because I, I could totally see that movie just destroying some people and making yeah, them swear yeah. off of that stuff. But at the same time, it could come in the form of like, a, you know, the birthing of a new addiction where it's like, ooh, I like this feeling of spookiness. Yeah, no, I um, loved it. I will say. And I, it was one of those things that that video then got passed around all of my friends at school. Like it was in my school bag and everyone was like, oh, have you got that film with you today? And I was like, yep, here you go. It's an 18. Don't tell your parents that kind of thing. Uh, and I remember one time we watched it with a friend of ours and we were sat in his living room and his dog was sat next to us. And at the end of the dog scene, his dog just looked up and just stared at us. And we were just like, oh no, <laughs> it was like sudden panic and fear. Obviously nothing happened, but the threat was real, you know? Uh, if only we had uh, easy internet access back then and high speed smart- smartphones, because then somebody could queue up the Ennio Morricone music. And as the dog's staring at him, just yeah. dum dum. Dum 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 dum. Yeah, such a. I, I love that that score got a, a Razzie, like from one one of history's most beloved film composers, Ennio wow. Morricone, got a fucking Razzie for the score for that film. And if you ask me, it's it's massively effective. It's a great. Like it's soundtrack. a very good score, mm-hmm. but at the time, the both the movie and the score were both kind of critically shat upon. Um, but if memory serves, the first time I saw it was like via Joe Bob Briggs's. Uh, uh, tnt monster vision program so i got oh. to watch it in like a fun way where we kept cutting yeah. back to joe bob tearing the movie a new one and <laughs> like having fun with it yeah and i was with my dad so it was it was frightening but i had the security of having my you know my dad in the room with yeah, me. yeah. um but i mean yeah you got to get jordan up to speed with some of these cinematic classics oh we're doing it uh, Mm-hmm. yeah when i did get when i did have the pleasure of speaking with the fella i was like oh you poor deprived boy like, <laughs> like, like, like some somebody needs to get you up to speed there are many great things out there you just haven't been made aware of them yes yes well i'm working on it trust me so uh keep sending the hateful emails to uh, griefbrito.com <laughs> and i'll forward them on to him <laughs> <laughs> you sure you don't want to just provide the personal one just get it straight to the man's yeah, we'll, doorstep we'll stick it in the show notes <laughs> there you go uh 
Well, that being said, uh, we should probably get to the movie proper. Yeah. Um, so much like last week when I had my brother Matt on the show um, to talk about Sound of Metal, uh, I figure we're being as we don't really have a theme this month, may as well call this just like a casual May. Like this is this yeah, okay. is like the run up to summer May. We're just going to keep things laid back and we're just going to fucking talk. Uh, so we're not going <laughs> beat for beat on this film. We're just going to take the conversation organically wherever it may go. Um, so as I said, uh, this is The Fifth Element, directed by Luc Besson from 1997. It is headlined by Bruce Willis. However, this is very much not really a Bruce Willis movie. No. Um, it's kind of a, a story of... It's not an ensemble cast, but it is like a story that kind of has this rhythm of blowing the lens as far back as it can go and then pushing it in as tight as it can go. Yeah. And it, um, the rhythm of this movie is partly why I love it. Um, mm-hmm. Much like you said, um, and it seems like that's kind of a recurring element, at least in some of your your recent Greek burrito shows, is a nostalgia, I guess. I yeah, mean, you did yeah. an entire episode just based on the concept, but part of why this movie resonates with me personally is, as you said, it it, it kind of crystallized in my mm-hmm. mind, like like who I was when I saw it, and yeah. uh, it also helps that the movie was played relentlessly on cable um, for years after its release um was that the case over in the uk as well i don't think so no i i don't really remember seeing it very much i think it was on like sky movies when i watched it but other than that not really no it was it it always felt very strange of a movie to me it was it's because it's not a hollywood movie it's like a weird french film wearing hollywood's jacket it's like someone put a Hollywood lens on a weird indie film and like gave them a huge budget to get go which it did it had it had the I think it was the biggest budget French film ever at the time wasn't it yeah it may have been the biggest budgeted European film uh, oh wow, of its okay day. right yeah right. it was it was a big deal uh actually you know in retrospect it still is in a lot of ways mm-hmm. uh, mostly in the form of some of the talent involved uh, because Luc Besson was on fire when this film came out um, yeah that that's largely how the film got financed was that his international success, like he finally hit his stride, not Mm -hmm. just as a French filmmaker, um, but like as an international box office seller, like Leon, the professional uh, came out a few years before this. um, And in fact was treated as, as like an intermediate project as he was doing pre-production work for the fifth element. Oh, wow. Um, Okay. Because as I understand it, he actually started writing the film like as a teenager and it was just this like dream concept he would continue to ply away at um, over the years. So long before 16, I think when he started it, wasn't he? Yes, that's my understanding. He was 16 and it was just a passion project that he would chip away at. um, And then he eventually became a filmmaker. He did the taxi films in France. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's he's financed so many French films over the years, but Leon, as far as I know, was the one that he was in the middle of doing pre-production for The Fifth Element, and then some some technical aspects of the production were not ready, uh, largely okay. CGI-related and studio-related. Like, he couldn't get studio space, he couldn't get the budget he wanted, and computer technology wasn't where it, was, where, where it needed to be to yeah, realize yeah. the images he had in his head. Uh, so he was like, fuck it, I'll put that one on the shelf. Uh, it's, it's not ready yet. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm just going to, you know, let that bread rise a little bit. And then I'm going to go make a fantastic film, Leon the Professional. Mm-hmm. And then when the time is right, I'll secure the financing and the studio space and the computer technology I need to make The Fifth Element. But in addition to Bisson, we also have Jean-Paul Gaultier, 
doing mm-hmm. the costume design. Yeah, I know. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> That's fucking nuts. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal, uh, especially when you consider the sheer volume of costuming in this film. Oh, I know. Yeah. But I mean, that really goes into nailing the look of the film. Like, there's so much to this film that is the world that it's inhabiting. Like, it's almost it feels almost like blade runner in the way that it's so expansive like there's so much more going on than you we ever got any access to because we never got a sequel we never got any like reading material there was never a book to follow up there was nothing that gave you any more and that is something that i always really wanted i just wanted to know a little bit more like where did the mandachi ones come from who made the stones like why tell me just give me anything you know okay well I knew this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it was going to be me uh, who was going to be floating the idea. But uh, tangents are a thing that happen on Catching Up on mm-hmm. Cinema. Uh, it's very rare that they get announced, as I'm doing right now. Um, but I'm curious, Harrison, what are your thoughts on on expanded universes and such? And allow me to elaborate. So mm-hmm. I was flipping through Instagram this morning, as you do. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I stumbled across an advertisement from Disney that almost felt like a threat to some degree and they do this they have been doing this since they acquired star wars basically yeah um and they were advertising their their disney plus service as they do Mm -hmm. um and they had like a a hashtag like the story continues or something but above that the the caption said your favorite stories don't have to end and i was like but but they do because yeah. <laughs> because my my feeling on storytelling is oftentimes the the most beautiful of stories are ones that have concrete endings mm-hmm. where it's like if you if you choose to go back and visit that story it there's a sense of comfort in my mind anyway that i can close that book and there's no more yeah like everything that mm-hmm. could be said about that any questions you might have it's up to you to theorize because no one's ever going to fill it in you just have you got what you got be happy with it mm-hmm. but now we're we've been living in this media environment as of late where nothing ever ends no, <laughs> like everything out. is just des- <laughs> everything is designed uh to perpetuate yeah. like like even technology like planned obsolescence is mm-hmm. you know it's a thing that's been around for quite some time but the same can be said for media properties where star wars can exist as long as they choose to continue making new products for it same goes for marvel movies and stuff Mm -hmm. but in my mind that's actually part of the beauty of the fifth element is that yeah of course i have all the same questions you mentioned it would be nice to have some details about things but that's all that's all like this film is is a unique property that's really rare uh to have a massively budgeted blockbuster film uh be based on just some some teenager's notebook (laughs) Um, (laughs) like usually it's you know based on a it's an adaptation of some sort yeah um but enough of my rambling harrison what are your feelings on everything i was just talking about i've got some okay okay let me unpack that a little bit so i think it's it's a lot i I went all over the place take your time no no i'm glad you did because you gave me a couple of different thinking points in in one aspect like I said, like I do want to know more. However, I think that this film being so like bookended, like you said, it makes it almost more perfect that way than if it gave me any more. But because there's a bookend, I'm, I'm not that I'm unhappy with it. Sorry, I'm like really tripping over my own thoughts of how to really establish what I mean here. Like, if it went further, it may have fizzled out and I would have been disappointed more disappointed than i would have been that it stopped early 
So I'm kind of glad in a way that it stopped early to make it such a perfect product. But I'm always left thinking, what if there was like just something else? And in terms of that, like when, when I look at, obviously my podcast based on gaming for any listeners who don't know, when I look at the expanded universe in games, there's a, one of the examples I like to give is obviously Halo is this massive franchise that everyone knows about. There is a trilogy of books in the expanded media of, of Halo in the universe that is called the Kilo 5 trilogy. And it's written by a writer called Karen Travis. And we've actually managed to secure her to come on the show um, in June, which is amazing because she's done some of my favorite books in like Gears of War and Halo, but she only ever made this really short trilogy. And the reason that it's so good is because this expanded universe is an interesting story around a set of characters that could be in any universe whatsoever. And it just so happens that they're in the Halo universe. And it's more the the small character interactions that make this extra bit of content interesting as opposed to it being slapped into a universe. And I don't know, that's, that's sort of where I stand with universes. I'm more about the characters than the expanded universe. Like I know that Star Wars has kind of got messy and I do like Star Wars and I, you know, I, I will go on record even saying that I did kind of like The Last Jedi and I get a lot of shit for that. And that's fine. I don't mind. I like to be surprised and that was why I kind of liked The Last Jedi. But yeah, I agree. Like, I don't ever want to get to the point where it can fizzle out. So, yes, I'm on your side there, Trevor. I, I agree with you completely, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I don't know if I agree with me completely, mm-hmm. so be careful. Okay. <laughs> but right. I have a couple of thoughts running simultaneously, like parallel to each other, that are both cul-de-sacs, so feel free to jump off uh, from that wherever you, okay. you choose. Pull a quick U-turn. Um, first, thought, first thought is uh, the notion of quitting while you're ahead. Yes. Um, that's something that I don't mm-hmm. feel anyone ever really does. Like no. Most people fuck it up. Like you, like you said, it it's all too common. Uh, mm-hmm. for media properties to expand to the point where it's like if you'd stopped 10 years ago if you'd stopped five years ago if you stopped last year yeah. you would have had like a hundred percent positive legacy now you have this jumbled mess where it's like oh it's pretty good except that one part um lord of the rings and, really and the hobbit rare. lord of the rings and the hobbit Ooh. oh dude i know oh dude yeah i i didn't finish those hobbit films like i i got through i watched i subjected myself to those first two and that third one came out, and my friend asked, do you want to go with with that intonation? With that and I was like, wow. And I just kind of laughed, and I'm like, no. <laughs> like, are you fucking kidding? Like, I, do you remember the, the CGI River of Gold? Do you remember that bullshit? Because yeah, <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I remember this one uh, one-panel comic. I forget where I saw it, though, unfortunately. I think it was, uh, it was Calvin and Hobbes and... Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple like a cow from the far side okay and it was it was just a caption that read like celebrating the uh quitting while you're ahead club like successfully quitting yeah. while you're ahead club so like gary larson and bill waterson like as mm-hmm. newspaper comic artists everything they did was gold like i know bill waterson is a is a bizarre recluse these days i can't speak for gary larson but the two of them their career in in comics it's like if i flip it open any compilation of their newspaper comics mm-hmm. it's all gold yeah and part of that had to do with them you know looking out the window one day and being like you know i think i'm done yeah <laughs> cut it there. And, and not not doing like a what's his face uh, garfield uh 
his name escapes me at the moment, yeah, but same. Garfield is still running. Uh, <laughs> uh, I forget that guy's name, unfortunately. Somehow I remember the obscure ones, not the more famous ones. But uh, other thought I had um, was about uh, the novels you mentioned, mm-hmm. how the characters in those Halo novels could be from any other property. They just mm-hmm. happened to be in a Halo property. And the strength of those characters was the appeal of those stories, not so much the yeah. fact that they were in a Halo thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just a thing that seems to be uh, an element of the, the media climate these days. It's I, I've heard it said that it's easier than ever to get your product made, but more difficult than ever to get it seen. Um, and I feel like a lot of... As podcasters, we can both relate to that. But um, in terms of storytelling, yeah, you can have the best fucking story in the world. You can have the most important philosophical message ever. But if you don't have the right delivery system for it, no one's going to see it. So I feel like a lot of people maybe end up finding themselves in situations like that Mm -hmm. where it's like, yeah, I have these wonderful characters. And if I just tweak them a little bit, they can become Star Wars characters. Yeah, And everybody will see them, but they won't be they won't be 100% mine anymore. So there's that element of compromise. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But speaking of characters, uh, yeah. we should probably get to the movie instead yeah. of my ramblings. <laughs> <laughs> so we have we have a host of really strange but but very mostly mostly endearing characters in this film. Of course, Bruce Willis is the the person whose name is biggest on the marquee. He's the person mm-hmm. whose face was all over the marketing for the film. Um, and he portrays Corbin Dallas in this, who has a military history, but now he's apparently divorced and kind of down and out. A cab driver, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's a cab driver. <laughs> um, but in terms of screen time, like he's not in the movie too much. Actually, there's an interesting balance uh, in mm. terms of how the characters are portrayed in this. Like Lilu is, of course, one of the more important characters, but she kind of takes a back seat every now and again. Uh, to let the story breathe because unfortunately she doesn't really have the gift of gab Um, in terms of exposition and whatnot she's not the best for pushing the plot forward so we need other mouthpieces to do it for her (laughs) Um, but did you have a favorite character in this movie harrison uh mine's zorg i I love zorg jean baptiste emmanuel zorg (laughs) like he's just he's perfect and I actually found out a, a little bit of trivia today that I, I never even clocked onto, really, that he is a, a reference to St. John the Baptist. Oh, I was not aware of that. Yeah, and, like, he, his name is Jean Baptiste. Like, it actually is the name. And there's a moment in the film that I thought... I thought I'd captured this scene completely for all of its worth, which is when... Father Father Cornelius, which is Ian Holmes' character, is taken before Zorg in his tower. And Zorg's looking out of his circular glowy blue window. And he wants to find out where the stones are. And Holmes is taken before him, Cornelius. And he says, uh, tell me where the stones are. And he goes, I wouldn't tell you even if I knew. And he, when he steps forward, he goes, wow, what's wrong with me? In his like little accent. But when he says, what's wrong with me? the circular window lines up as a halo like St. John behind his head. And it's like, what's wrong with me? Dink. And it like, the halo is there perfectly in time. And I was like, holy shit, Luke Besson. Like directorial timing for that was absolutely spot on. And I had never picked up on that before. 
Yeah, I don't think I have ever. So thanks for pointing no that worries. out. Watch I have a back. reason yeah. to go back and watch it. Uh, because this movie, as I said, at least over here in the States, was mm-hmm. played over and over and over again on, right. on cable uh, yeah. through my youth. Uh, same with Die Hard with a Vengeance and Die Hard 2. Okay. Die Hard 1, I think, was too violent until the FX network came around and they give no shits about violence. Okay. Profanity, mm-hmm. no, no, no. We can't have any yeah. swearing. But violence, FX doesn't give two shits. Um, <laughs> but but um, yeah, I've, I've seen this movie countless times, and yet I, I've never noticed that. But um, Luc Besson is, of course, an incredible visualist. Uh, yeah. he, he has a, an eye for cinematography, and his editing in particular in this film, uh, and Shit Leon, hot. for that matter. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. uh, took... You, took the words right out of my mouth no you didn't you, you said it better than i could but yeah some of the editing in his in this film in particular is incredible i, I love some of the transitions it superb yeah. comic timing like when he uh, thinks honestly. he's got the stones in the box and he goes it's empty what do you mean empty and it cuts to someone else in their back the opposite of full <laughs> <laughs> no that that entire exchange there's I went on a rant about this the other day about um, action scenes cutting back and forth between multiple locations, um, yeah. multiple action scenes, not not just like multiple things happening at the same time, but like two two different groups of people punching each other. Mm-hmm. There's a right way to do that and a wrong way. Uh, this yes. movie does those cross cuts exceedingly well to the yeah. point that you're never lost and every every moment is punctuated and a lot of that has to do with how the soundtrack is integrated but that beat you're talking about with the stones they do an intentional jump cut that has such beautiful yeah. comic timing to it cuz he opens he opens the box and it has like the whole like epic choral <laughs> choral track playing over yeah. it and then when he slams the the case shut the camera just jumps like the framing adjusts yeah. and his face he looks so put out <laughs> and it's it was a choice like they yeah. they could have yeah. done that in one take but no they decided for a totally different camera setup for when he, to just show how put out he is yeah, and the, yeah. the of course the music drops out and stuff but on top of that you also have like i think when he discovers that, when when he announces that the box, the case is empty, we cut to Lilu just going, ah! Yeah, the laugh. <laughs> it's so perfect. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> no, it, there's so many great moments like that. And I'm, I'm probably going to end up pointing them out as we mm-hmm. go. But yeah, Zorg, Zorg is, Zorg, is yeah. fantastic. Um, Gary Oldman had worked with Luc Besson in Lyon uh, yeah, prior to yeah. this film. And apparently they had a wonderful working relationship. I've seen a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff mm-hmm. of Gary Oldman, who was, of course, every villain in the '90s. Everywhere, uh, yeah. He was a he was a cut-up on the on the set. Like he he made everybody laugh. He would break out laughing on so many takes. Like he was he was clearly like a a, a warm presence on the set. But Zorg is a very fascinating villain. He's very unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, he is. And. I don't know if this is a French thing, like if maybe they have different sentiments about these things, but his portrayal in the film when I was a child, like his place in the in mm-hmm. the story anyway, um, always felt like a little bit of a letdown because I don't know if it's because I played too many video games as a kid with boss fights and whatnot. Okay. Um, he never meets most of the principal cast in this no. film. I never even noticed has, that till today. I didn't know he doesn't yeah. even, he never meets Corbin Dallas, ever. Yeah, and it's not Corbin Dallas's film, so it, like, mm-hmm. 
as an adult, I can look back and be like, no, that that's fine. Nor is he the principal villain of the film. Uh, Mr. Shadow, the, the great ball of fire, is yeah, actually yeah. the villain. He's just an instrument of Mr. Shadow. Um, very similar to Unicron and Galvatron, by the way, from yeah. Transformers the movie. <laughs> um, right down to the, the angry phone calls that cause uh, head tremors and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, fine. But... Um, but yeah, he never really meets our principal cast. Like he does have that dialogue exchange with Ian Holmes, mm-hmm. uh, who's, you know, formerly a living legend, no longer, yes. but yeah. he is sorely missed. Uh, he's he great talent, and his comedic talent in this is on full display. Like he yeah. he has so many quirks, and his his timing of like his squiv- his uh, quivering speech pattern and stuff is yeah. There's the moment with, with the cherry scene where he goes, "Your giant empire came crashing down because of one." little cherry and it's like the way it's like <laughs> punctuated is perfect yeah and and i want to say that like part of the reason why chris tucker is allowed to be in the final reel of the film is just because luke besson wanted to see the two of them together yeah because they only, they only have a couple of moments together but they do play off of each other like when he discovers the bomb he's like if it was a bomb there'd been a llama go off <laughs> and then yeah, yeah the, very solid editing but the two of them on screen together i think they had some chemistry like yeah. they knew they knew each other's rhythm i would stuff, watch that but... buddy cop i would watch that like maybe do rush hour but without jackie chan and put ian holmes in there instead yeah <laughs> you'd do a rush hour uk edition yeah i'd be up for that <laughs> i mean it'd, be, it'd have to be a zombie film as well so ian holmes no, no. <laughs> Yeah, of course. Yeah. Or or Ian Holmes turns out to be a secret android or something. <laughs> yeah, again, like from Alien. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, um, we'll 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 get into the cast, like some of the more disparate elements of the cast as we go. Mm-hmm. Um, but focusing back on Zorg, um, he he sees Lilu. I don't think he knows who she is. He starts no. shooting at her, but she escapes into the vents before anything really any words are exchanged yeah. it's just like hey orange haired lady you, you you gotta die I mean, <laughs> to be fair he's only defending himself she threw a box at him and he's just like oh <laughs> yeah, okay she... yeah you know it, it was a heavy box I mean. <laughs> <laughs> um but there's there's like an intentional move on the part of the director uh where the two different parties are uh getting on and exiting an elevator separate from each other mm-hmm. but like two feet apart and yes. Bruce Willis and, and his Scooby squad hop into the elevator and in the other elevator next to it, Zorg pops out. Mm-hmm. So it's like ships in the mist that yeah. just pass each other. So like me as a child watching this movie for the first time, I was like, when are they going to get to the fireworks factory? Yeah. Like, when is Bruce Willis going to punch Gary Oldman? It's like, well, it's not that kind of movie, Trevor. It's, no. I want it to be that kind of movie. <laughs> Which is probably why I don't think this movie's box office numbers were astounding in the U.S. anyway. No, no. Um, but it does have a strong legacy, um, probably due to home video and, again, mm-hmm. how many times it was played on cable. And the fact that it's just a fucking great movie <laughs> yeah yeah too. i think it, it sort of fell into it, not as low as cult classic but it got that kind of like really heavy following behind it for sure yeah it, it has a very strong following mm-hmm. and i think part of the appeal of it is that it's so unusual and the editing is is kind of hypnotic in a way where it yeah. it it's it does everything well like the, yes. I've, I've said it before i think even last week we're 
sometimes the best thing you can do is just not fuck up. <laughs> like, <laughs> like if you do everything well, then then everybody comes away from it satisfied. And because of that, the film is very approachable. Like you can walk into this film at almost any point and find yourself just easing into the couch and being like, oh, I guess I'll watch this. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, the, the, the film tonally jumps about a lot. And I think because of that, you can watch it in whatever mood you're in. Like, it's the perfect film for, you've just got back from the pub and you're like, oh, I'm feeling a bit drunk. Going to eat a bit of food and watch a movie. Or it's, I'm not feeling well. I'm going to stay in bed and I'm going to put a film on today. You know, that kind of thing. And you can just sit and you can just, it just washes over you. Like you said, hypnotically. It just sort of guides you through all these weird characters as you experience it, you know? Yeah, and it has such a confidence in its internal logic that mm, even even if you're not entirely sure what's going on or why things are happening, the the movie is very the movie knows. yeah yeah the movie knows. So it's like just, just like you don't it doesn't even assure you like bear with us. It's just like we're going yeah like, like, we're going. and it doesn't matter. You're going to enjoy where we get to. So just <laughs> sit tight. We'll get to it. <laughs> <laughs> and there's so many like musical montages that that take on so many different flavors that yeah I could totally see like easing into the couch during the takeoff sequence um, to Flost in Paradise or something. It's like, I don't know what's going on, but there's reggae music and flamethrowers, so I'm yeah. down. <laughs> this, yeah. <laughs> Pretty sure Chris Tucker's going down on a lady right now as well. Yeah, well. PG-13, y'all. <laughs> it's like, or, or wait, is this R-rated? It does have nipples in it, but it know, is French, actually. so maybe they maybe they give them a pass. Yeah, probably. If I, had to, if I had to guess, I, oh, it's PG-13, uh-huh. and it has nipples? Mm-hmm. My God! It's like nipples from by far American away. standards, it's distance nipples. <laughs> Di- yes, occluded nipples. Occluded. If you will. <laughs> by American standards, though, that is m- m- most unorthodox. <laughs> Seriously, nipples, female yep. nipples yep. in an American PG thirteen production. Yep. Got to cover those up. Don't you get Never one? Happened. Do you get one fuck? Is that what you're allowed in a PG thirteen? One fuck. Uh, right? Yes, I-, I think officially you get one fuck. However, I. Don't we mean the word for the listeners. We mean the word, not like the bony. <laughs> one one act of fuckery. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to see that in like the official like MPAA handbook. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. Like checkbox, like one act of fuckery. It's like, it's like, what do you mean by fuckery? Yeah, that, that means something else. Fuckery in the UK is like you're messing something up. Yes, that's what yeah. I mean. Oh, okay, right. <laughs> no, that it, that translates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, I believe you get one fuck. Um, although, as far as I know, it is not often used. Um, no, probably because I could totally see that some be being something that like the MPA would want cut out. It's yeah. like you're already you're already riding the line. Like the easiest thing to cut out would probably be an f bomb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's easy just not to do it and save the work of the editing afterwards, isn't it, I suppose? Yeah, it's like, we already know this is going to be a red flag, so Mm -hmm. we may as well just not poke the bear with that. But um, (laughs) (laughs) I loved how uh, Zorg kind of has like a catchphrase, honestly. Like all of his dialogue is delivered rapid fire and with such verve, like Mm -hmm. by Gary Oldman with this this lovely... uh, 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 It's a southern accent of sorts, but it it, it has a... It almost has like a, a... like a Clary Starling, like Tennessee vibe to it. It does, yeah. He's got the same accent as Stone, like the guy Stones. in the white suit with like the 
the house out in the middle of the bayou, that kind of thing. Like yeah. he's, I want, I want those stones. <laughs> stones. Well, you can stones. still count one, two, <laughs> three, four. Yeah. Not one or two Not or three, three but four. four. <laughs> zero stones, zero crates. <laughs> yeah, he's oh, brilliant. That's a lovely tirade, but his catchphrase is is simply, "I know." I know. And yes. It, I'm sorry, sir. You can't I, stop I here. There's a bomb in the hotel. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. I know. <laughs> You're a monster, Zorg. I know. <laughs> and, of course, when he blows up his uh, associate in, like, a, a Bond villain display of yes. e- evilness, he blows him Do up. Do you know who that is? Do you know who his associate is? No, but I know there are a lot of European celebrities in this, mostly UK folks that... Yes. Uh, are not known to me. So if you spotted he's, any... He's very obscure. He's actually one of the singers from the band Massive Attack. Really? Yes. I was not aware of that. Next time you listen to Massive Attack, listen to the Mezzanine album. And I think he sings on about five or six tracks on that one. Uh, I think he sings Angel, which was one of the singles. If you listen to it and listen to his voice, you'll hear it right away. I am Corbin Dallas. <laughs> I don't believe this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I, I love when he uh, he shows up with Zorg's goons, and we get a we get a callback gag where mm. Corbin shows up at uh, Ian Holmes's door, and he's like, "Wedding weddings are upstairs." <laughs> and Not then really. massive attack guy shows up with the goons. <laughs> he's yeah. like, "Weddings?" And he's like, looks behind him, and there's like three massive dudes yeah, yeah. with these like transparent blue cap, skull like caps. skull caps yeah, yeah. all in very <laughs> tiny hot like hot pants leather hot pants and really tight shirts yeah, yeah and they're doing the the double suitcase walk all yes. three of them yeah. he just kind of looks over his shoulders and he's like not really, not really. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty great but no I, I was not aware of that i i know there are a lot of like celebrities that, that i couldn't mm. identify in this so if you if you know of any others by all means point them out i know the opera sequence in particular has a handful of familiar faces that probably would not be known to to my american eyes mm-hmm. um but yeah zorg is definitely one of the standout characters although um as tends to be the case with a lot of films uh, his screen time is extraordinarily limited yeah. um, he is not in much of the film um and he does occupy that odd space where he's the he's the character we have to interact with in terms of like uh, aggressive villainous actions we also have the the mangalores who are mm-hmm. an entire race of like klingon-esque like warrior creatures that uh just seem to they don't know how to let go of a grudge kind of <laughs> like like they don't seem to have an agenda they don't really have an agenda other than we're, we're kind of committed to being mad at certain people and we're just going to keep being mad. Yeah. We're going to keep we're going to keep kidnapping and killing people until I guess we're dead. <laughs> well, yeah, it's that it, they make the point of saying that they always follow their leader. So I guess because is it not Aknot? He's the guy who gets put in charge. There's another I can't remember. The, no, it is Aknot. Yeah, it's Aknot. I think it is Aknot. He's the guy who gets blown up when they press the, the little red button on the bottom of the gun. And he presses that and <laughs> blows everyone up. That scene as well when he's just talking about the gun and he's like, the flamethrower, my favorite. Like, oh, me and my dad say that all the time. He's like, my favorite. <laughs> Actually, it's kind of funny you single out that scene because it's wonderful. It's yeah. really the, the first real proper introduction we get to Zorg. Um, for whatever reason, on cable, that is oftentimes a scene that gets cut down. 
oh. um, for for time probably for advertising yeah um the flamethrower part is often excised from television oh, broadcasts of that and i was like but that's like one of his best lines yeah <laughs> it's, it's so weird but that gun as a kid i, I remember drawing that in my school books like <laughs> it has such an extraordinarily like unique shape and design to it it's shaped almost like an egg it is like yeah a pill or something. yeah well speaking of halo like earlier it looks very much like a covenant weapon from halo like the needler or something actually um sorry more tangents <laughs> sorry <laughs> listeners i'm glad you i'm glad you pointed that out because um calling back to the idea of expanded media franchises and whatnot mm -hmm. um what's interesting about this film is that it is a self-contained property i i suspect maybe there were sequel talk at some point there was there yeah likely yeah that it, that seems like something you would do with something this expensive and this successful in europe anyway like internationally this movie did very very well it's just in the u.s apparently the box office wasn't amazing still good though mm -hmm. um but what's fascinating about this film is that even though it has not continued, its impact on other media franchises is apparent. Like you can see its DNA in other things. Like like you had mentioned Blade Runner. Clearly, you know, they did draw some inspiration, although the color palette and the general vibe of this movie is so radically different from that mm -hmm. that they're two totally different things, but the you know, the kind of like Judge Dredd cityscape the mega city concept and yeah. stuff is certainly common to, to all three of those things and uh the major difference though is that blade runner is is drab it's it's in a state of perpetual grime and rain yeah it's, whereas it's the fifth element fire and is water generally is pretty red, clean yeah yeah uh, the color palette in the fifth element is vibrant and mm, very it, warm it seems like yes we are living in an overpopulated earth however the general vibe of the populace is is more just kind of like like eye rolling as opposed to like ultra depressing or <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> blade runner it feels dystopian it feels like it the the average like quality of life for the citizenry is not good whereas fifth element yes you could argue that those apartments are not exactly amazing but everybody seems okay with it yeah like they're, they're they're okay yeah it, it definitely feels that way yeah it's uh it almost reminded me a little bit of tokyo like the way everything's very brightly colored and warm and like you said, the vibrant colors and the signs and definitely the, the traffic and the amount of people. Uh, funny enough about Blade Runner, you've just reminded me of something. The This is a tangent of a tangent. The Super Mario Brothers movie, right? Yeah, yeah. Same production designer. <laughs> As Blade, Blade Runner. Runner anyway. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I found that out on this watch and I was like, oh my God. And that's obviously why that movie has that such like consistent tone of looking so strangely adult and sci-fi, even though it's Super Mario. Yes. I digress. I'm sorry. Let's uh, hop back onto the previous tangent before we get any further. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, still not quite done with that first tangent, yeah. but um, I I don't know if it's ever going to come out. I, I, I expect it will, but I know uh, that new Beyond Good and Evil game. I think yes. it's an Ubisoft game. Yeah. The trailer for that that dropped like several years ago, mm -hmm. everything about it, I was like, oh, that looks like the fifth, the fifth element. element with monkey and pig people it does, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. like so much of it made me think of this and you know it's fitting being as i believe ubisoft is a french game company so yep. it <laughs> makes sense um and uh the concept artist uh, one of them uh, for the fifth element was mobius uh, the very very famous comic artist um, mm -hmm. among others but you have john paul gautier and and mobius working on your <laughs> your film jesus it's going to be 
it's going to be pretty. Like, yeah. It's going to be aesthetically pleasing at the very least, and the end product certainly shows it. There's there's a level of care and detail put into the production design for this movie that's mm-hmm. really stunning. And part of the charm of it is that it came out in that perfect sweet spot of the late 90s where we had CGI, but it was useful for very specific things in very specific conditions. Yeah. Everything else in between that, though, had to be done practically with sets and costumes and miniatures, lots mm-hmm. of them. Um, and in terms of those technologies, because all of those artists and artisans had not yet jumped ship to the computer work, work desk, mm-hmm. all the people doing all those those miniatures and costumes and, st- and stuff were working with the like the highest level of craftsmanship that that we've really seen in a lot of ways it's it's a wonderful time in hollywood history where you it get is. to see the the best the best that they had to offer kind of yeah yeah Cause, i mean the, the cgi is very sparing the only moments that really stick out to me are like the taxi sequence uh Flatten paradise when you see the ship like floating over this the uh the thingy and then mr shadow himself when they're fighting in space the rest of it is pretty much all miniatures and actual sets which i appreciate a hell of a lot yeah i i appreciate all of it i try my best to appreciate all mm-hmm. of it because I, I think i think people of a certain age range like like you and i mm-hmm. tend to have like a, a tendency to really look upon practical effects as like that's doing it right yeah, yeah but in in more recent years i've kind of walked that back and begun to accept that it's like no you know every technology has its proper it's got its place yeah yeah and for me personally a, a big part of that has been a performance capture technology yeah um yeah. in the late 2000s when that started to get rolled out like it was rough like some of those robert zemeckis movies that they're not they're not the best display of that technology but in more recent years especially in video games and whatnot we've really begun to see that yes you can transpose an actor's performance quite accurately onto a cgi figure and you'll you'll get you'll get the same like emotional breadth of material as you would yeah, with a yeah. live performance uh so for me it's like one of those things i've had to expand my my ideas of of what is quality and mm-hmm. and what is like an overuse of cgi like everything has its proper place and um, the cab sequence in this film has tons of miniature work that's probably the most intensive in, in the entire film. Like yeah. the majority of the cityscape, if not all of it, is rendered in miniature. Um, most of the vehicles, if not all of them, are rendered in CGI. Um, but it's kind of like a 50-50 deal where mm-hmm. the environment that all those vehicles are traveling through is is one technology and the other one's the other. And they, they kind of seamlessly integrate. Makes for... A, kind of a lovely set piece honestly it's really good scene it's it's actually done very very well considering the age of the film and the age of the cgi like i think if you look at other films from this era like perhaps even the the same year and look at the cgi you'd probably see a lot of films that didn't look that good like i think this one has aged fantastically well like looking back on it there's still watching back that scene last night I, I was still impressed. I was still enamored with everything that was going on. And I think that the way it's directed for the fact that the cars are obviously chasing up and down and over everything, the speed of what's happening helps blur the line between the CGI and the practical effects as it's going on. So I think, like you said, it's, it's where it's used well. And I think Luc Besson knew exactly when to use it and when not to use it. And I think he did a very good job with that. I uh going back to like what what we said before like is there is there anything in this film that was 
a standout moment for you? Like, is there a certain part of this film where you were like, oh, okay, I'm really impressed by this section? Because like for me, I love the, the, the diva sequence. I think the music there is great. The costume work on the diva is brilliant. And something I, again, found out on from the trivia from what, what I've been watching the past few days is that the, the caster didn't know what the diva was going to look like. They, <laughs> they weren't shown. So when they're all sat in the crowd and you see the reaction on their faces when she walks out, that's the genuine reaction on like Bruce Willis's face of this strange blue alien dancing around on the stage who was actually played by Luke Besson's wife at the time, which must have made it really awkward for his next wife, which was Mia Jovovich. <laughs> Let's not uh, get into that, though. Um, but I think it, it happens. <laughs> yeah, the, the, it these does. creative individuals, the Tim Burton's of the world, you know, they Mm -hmm. <laughs> it happens it does. It anyway. does. Uh, but yeah that, that whole scene with the diva I think is a very poignant moment in it it sort of encapsulates everything about that the film in a perfect way from where it's jumping between these very like action comedy weird tones that we were talking about earlier to suddenly something almost quite haunting like the operatic work is very, very haunting. That's sung. I'd, do you know who the singer was? Because it is a real singer, isn't it? She's called like yeah. Uh, I something. had to look it up. Yeah, obviously I didn't know this off the top of my head, but it is uh, Inva Mula provides the That's voice, it. and as yeah. you said, um, Luc Besson's wife at the time of production mm -hmm. uh, was the actual actress uh, doing the lip sync and whatnot. Yeah, and uh, I've actually seen some people sing this, like for real recently on youtube good god some people have got some serious lungs in their bodies i'll tell you that yeah no it's astounding actually my my girlfriend is a, a singer and uh, nice. she she was enamored with the scene the first time she saw it and uh, like you she's mm -hmm. looked up lots of live performances of it just to be in in awe of the vocal talent mm -hmm. required to to do that um, I want to say it actually requires like a different physiology just to just to hit some of these notes. In fact, it was composed purposely to be impossible. impossible. It was. Yeah. Yeah. And as far as I know, it, it still kind of is. Yeah. There's, there's one moment where there's a, a, a flurry of notes is probably the best way to do it. And it goes and it's just it's that speed. And to sing that is very it's supposed to be impossible, but I've seen some people do it with like 90% accuracy. And the people in the crowd are just like, fucking yes, I'll accept 90%. That is fine with me. <laughs> yeah, no, on a technical level, um, for somebody who has an educated ear and actually knows what goes into mm -hmm. rendering those notes, it must be pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, for, for my ear, though, it's still quite incredible I, mm -hmm. I don't have as educated an ear but the music's good the vocals are good yeah. i'm i'm happy i'm <laughs> <laughs> good to make <laughs> uh, but yeah as far as i know it was composed with the intention of having some some sequences of it like there's only like two or three bits that you can tell are digitally modulated in the final mm -hmm. product the rest of it's still a pretty impressive you know opera performance yeah um and actually the the design of the diva um Apparently, they were intending to have her sprout wings some at some point during the performance. Oh, okay. Um, however, uh, it was decided that it would be distracting because the the performance was so good. Yeah. Like the, yeah. the like like you said, it does have like a haunting quality to it. Um, and it, it's a weird moment in a in a a what you would call like a quote blockbuster movie. 
um and it, it's exceedingly french <laughs> that's what i was gonna say it's very french it is, yeah. <laughs> it's exceedingly french because like in a michael bay movie or something you wouldn't have this like strange deep like almost melancholy moment it like just preceding the climax like the action climax of your movie mm-hmm. and then you would have the audacity to not only have it precede the climax but actually cross cut between <laughs> the opera performance yeah, and yeah. the action it's it's quite ballsy but somehow it works it, like yeah, like in a traditional production where maybe the director didn't have as much clout i guess mm-hmm. i could totally see this particular sequence being one that producers would be like hey could you like maybe cut that down a bit or like Make it less maybe French. not have it <laughs> <laughs> because it's so unusual and it really does stop the movie dead for a couple of minutes mm-hmm. uh, during the first half of the vocal performance anyway and get it it works it really, does really well. I, I think it, it's the it's the well the, the singing pun aside it's the breath it really is the breath of the film like you've gone through all these crazy moments of cutting back and forth and the comedy in action and then suddenly you're sat still for a moment with the characters watching something very choreographed and then obviously you go into the fight scene with Lilu, and it goes very well because as soon as the music sort of elevates up into what's essentially like an electronica version of an operatic performance it goes into the combat where she's fighting the, the Mangalores and I think then there's comedy in that scene as well where she's like flapping his face and then does the double punch and yeah I think it's great I, I think that's a, a moment in the film that always sticks with me and it stuck with me since i was a kid just for being how unusual it was it's unusual but it's one of those things that if you give it even the the slightest amount of your attention you're kind of glued to it yeah totally like much much like every character in the room for the performance like Mm -hmm. the movie it quiets down and it, it gives the performer their due in the form of you know their esteemed attention and whatnot and we do have lots of like close-ups of bruce willis cut into that where you can tell Mm -hmm. he's like i don't know what i'm feeling right now but i'm feeling (laughs) and i obviously i I don't understand the lyrics of of this particular operatic arrangement or whatnot but Mm -hmm. um it's interesting given the situation that all the characters and in fact the entire universe i guess are in right now because it's like we're we're like 12 minutes to midnight kind of yeah um we're, we're at we're at the doorstep of of armageddon and here we are listening to this melancholy opera it's it 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 strikes an interesting tone there where it's like this is either like a celebration of life or the heralding of doom uh either way Mm -hmm. it seems like appropriate (laughs) like all these characters who are not aware that you know doomsday is literally right over there (laughs) Um, (laughs) like everybody's just kind of enraptured in this this moment this calm before the storm even if they're not aware of what the storm is um but yeah um for me that is one of the standout moments in the entire film that i would most certainly highlight um but really like i need to adjust my brain i've been doing this show too long for too many weeks consecutively (laughs) because my i started to notice this and i did run this by my girlfriend the other day that like i've started to get too hung up on technical details of movies Mm -hmm. and i want to get back to just fucking watching movies the experience of it like what it actually does while you watch it yeah because lately my my brain has been attuned to focusing on like lensing and editing in particular Mm -hmm. Um, and i kind of did that again i couldn't help myself in watching this film and 
Uh, there's like three sequences. There are more, but the the three sequences that jumped out to me the most were the the opera sequence because mm-hmm. um, during the more melancholy stages, the first half of that performance, uh, we get a lot of cross cross cutting from the stage to other things that are happening on the side. Uh, so we get the Mangalores setting up and getting ready to kind of assault the Faustin Paradise Hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, you also get Zorg uh, arriving. Uh, he pretends that his ship is damaged. He's like, hey, uh, floating hotel, can I like hang out with you guys for a while? <laughs> They're like, sure, come on aboard. Obviously creepy, scary man yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with lots of guns and no stones. No stones. <laughs> <laughs> um but as you said, when when we get when we transition into the the more upbeat section of that, we cross cut like on the beat basically between Lilu punching faces in and the the opera performer doing a a dance that's exceedingly gifable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> those 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 arm flaps. <laughs> I'm I'm sure that exists in gif form. Just an yeah. endless loop of that. Um, good performance, but <laughs> that the combination mm-hmm. of the costume and the body movements like. Very gifable, but yeah. in addition to that, there's the the moment we we mentioned before with the the stones and cutting back and forth to the the priest's office and Lilu telling them, "I know where the stones are." And then Ian Holmes like, "Oh my God, we don't have the stones. Where do we find them?" And then we cut to Zorg and it's like he's making a business deal to get the stones to mm-hmm. to negotiate over uh, handing over weapons in exchange for the stones. And we have that comedic beat where he doesn't have them. And yeah. then she's <laughs> she's laughing about it because she knows where they are, and he doesn't. Um, and also the uh, when we take off on the plane uh, to head to Faustin Paradise, yeah, yeah. Um, the cross cutting that happens there, we have all these disparate elements that come together so beautifully. And as you're watching it, you're like, "What are we doing? Yeah, <laughs> I don't really know." But but it's that kind of product. It's that kind of film where. As we said before, you could you just ease back into your chair. Don't question it. Just yeah. trust that they know what they're doing, and they most certainly do, because we have yeah. an incredibly varied soundtrack that covers all sorts of different flavors. Mm-hmm. This this one sequence in the film has a reggae tone to it, um, and there are men with flamethrowers uh, burning parasites off of the landing gears. While smoking of, of, weed. While, while smoking. smoking weed. Yeah. In 1997, big mm-hmm. fucking deal. <laughs> I need some heat, man. Bring me some heat, man. <laughs> Bring me some heat, man. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what the fuck is going on, but sure. But in between that, we also have Chris Tucker's Ruby Rod uh, kind of coming on to a, a flight attendant. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of these climaxes arrive at the same time. <laughs> climaxes. Well, you, you say that. You say climax. There's also the point where he goes, give me this, give me this, the, the, the Rasta guy. And he gets the, the nuclear fuel for the plane. And it's like a long bar. And when he inserts it into the plane, the woman goes, oh, Ruby Rod. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's what I mean about the, the comic timing of yeah, editing. It's so good. We are jumping in location so many times. And we do that really awesome thing where somebody talks about somebody and then looks off wistfully into the mid distance. And then we cut to that person, usually in an unflattering light. (laughs) We're like the first time we see Zorg, I think from behind is when Ian Holm does exactly that. He's like, my God, (laughs) like who could be, who could be so evil? And then just 
Zorg. <laughs> yeah, in the tower with his name on, isn't it? And his face is right in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and like with the the general uh, talking about like I, I know my man. He'll defuse the situation. Cut yeah. to Bruce Willis kicking a door open and shooting thirty people. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. It, it's beautiful. There's a lot of that in this movie, and it's it's comedy through editing. Yeah. It's like any of those things in isolation would be innocuous and not really mean much. It would be from a Steven Seagal movie, honestly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, you said about the 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 crate thing before when it's cutting to and fro. There is actually. Yeah. They redo that joke when he he gets he gets the gets the case gets in the, the plane or his space fighter from Floss and Paradise flies out into space and he sits down with the box doesn't he and he opens it and it does the music swell and he's like ha ha ha, ha, ha they're not here <laughs> he like he goes from laughing to crying and it's he goes on just long enough with the laugh that you think that he's got them and then it turns to instant regret yeah so. That's such a curious element of Zorg, where it's mm. like he's he's obviously an accomplished businessman, uh, none too bright though. No, <laughs> like no. like may, maybe he's maybe he's not a details guy. No. Like maybe he's a broad strokes guy because he fucked up with those stones and those cases, those stones, stones, yeah. and those cases two different times in this film. <laughs> wait, why First it... time, you know that that's okay. Like that, you know you. You, you didn't think about the wording of your arrangement. You yeah. said, get me the case. You didn't say anything about what was in the case. You just said, get me the case. That's on you. You know, yeah. that that's an honest, that's an honest to goodness fuck up that I could make. <laughs> but the second time, just open the case. Yeah, check the case. The check the case. Just check the thing. Like, it's like padding your pockets to see if you have your keys. Yep. Like, come on, man. <laughs> check your case to see if you got the stones. You just got to do it. <laughs> zero stones zero <laughs> crates <laughs> and yeah by the end of the film he is left with exactly that zero yep. stones and zero crates spoilers um yeah. <laughs> but yeah the the simultaneous climaxes of the of the takeoff sequence mm-hmm. to Frost in paradise really is it's eccentric editing but it's one of those things that's like man did they storyboard this like did they like really storyboard the edit exactly like this because if so damn like in terms of planning your film great fucking job well he he had 16 years to do it he had 16 years to do it so maybe he did yeah no absolutely um he he had 16 years to do it and uh he took multiple swings at doing it honestly Mm -hmm. like in the early 90s i guess he courted bruce willis to to be involved with the project and he was like kind of ambivalent it was nearly mel gibson yeah, and Mel Gibson as well, both of whom were massively bankable stars at the time. Um, and then he couldn't get financing, like I said, nor studio space, nor mm-hmm. technology and whatnot. So he, he put it on the back burner. And then it was kind of just by coincidence that Bruce Willis had a couple of duds in his filmography um, along the way. And when Luc Besson got back in touch with him and said, hey, like, you know that thing we talked about like five, six years ago? We're going to do it. And he's like... Yeah, okay. <laughs> like, send me a script. Money. If it's good, I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> no, like, immediately after Die Hard, uh, Bruce Willis had a couple of massive duds, one of which mm-hmm. I've thought about doing for catching up on cinema, Hudson Hawk, just because it has such a horrible reputation. Never even heard um, of it. Look it up. Okay. Uh, you might find it fascinating. I would not recommend watching it, though. Okay. It's, just do the research. It's legit. It's legit pretty bad. Uh, maybe look up a trailer or just, like, 
read about its reputation because it, it's legit very very bad okay and not in the good way like i feel uh, like this film is a weird moment in his career because from everything else i'd seen he's very i don't know he's 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 very what not not one note because he's you know he's a decent actor but he's very serious shall we say and then this is like he's he's still kind of the straight man he's the normal he's the normal person in the weird world so like we're experiencing it through his eyes and there's like the moments like when he, he gets mugged when he opens the door at his apartment and the guy's got the give hat. me the cash give me the cash <laughs> and he, and give me the cash he stands up and he's like that that's a nice hat and like we always laugh, me and my dad, whenever we watch back. Because if you watch Bruce Willis in that moment, it looks like he breaks character because he's laughing at the hat. And it looks so legit like he just can't stop himself from laughing. And it feels like this was a moment where, in his career, where he could actually have a bit of fun with a role. Like, it feels like he was like, you know, give a bit of something that you're not used to giving. And it comes across great from him. Like, I really appreciated this film from him, to be honest. I'm kind of torn about my feelings uh, regarding his performance in this film. Okay. Because he's he's a difficult actor to pin down in that way because his his like default mode is oftentimes to be a little bit kind of outside of the rest of the production. Yeah. Like what I mean douche. by that is, yeah, he he's kind of disengaged. Like yeah. that's kind of his default. And these days, it's like he's doing it in a gross manner where it's like, okay, he he's literally not caring yeah. anymore. <laughs> but but like part of the reason why his John McClane character got so many sequels and resonated so strongly with so many audiences is because he he was mouthy like he yeah. <laughs> like like he had a lot of off of the cuff riff, riffing that that really lent a lot of character to something that easily could have been very one dimensional mm-hmm. um and part of that was like you said it's like a little bit of a fish out of water they go to great lengths to show that John McClane is from New York not Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. He does not fit in with anyone in this building. Even the people he's fighting are from different parts of the world. Like he's he's a man displaced. Yeah. Um and I feel like in the fifth element he kind of coasts on that a little bit where it's like he you could just have him be John McClane, just like a less mouthy version of him because mm-hmm. the soundtrack of this film is already kind of cluttered with awesome music and sound effects. We can't have somebody yelling about whatever the fuck in between every shot <laughs> like it would be it would be really there'd be too much overlap it would be just too much noise um but he he just feels like he's he's like a silhouette of a person like corbin dallas okay. as a character kind of works but he's one of the least interesting characters in it if you ask me oh yeah i agree with that i agree with that he's he's definitely one of the least interesting but he's one of the more interesting bruce willis roles i thought just because of so it's because of how out of place he is though that's why he's sort of like what world am i living in that this is what i'm having to do you know i'm putting a hand in, inside a blue lady i'm fighting a guy with a weird haircut who wants some stones it just i like it for that reason and I, just then you you mentioned the soundtrack and we've we've brought up the soundtrack a few times and we've not really expanded on it so i'd like to for a moment if that's all right absolutely uh, so it's done by eric sarah who is the, he did most of the soundtrack for this. He also did Lyon. And he actually did Goldeneye as well. And I recognize that this was the same person from that one clank sound he uses. He uses that, it's like the same like metallic ringing sound. 
he just must love that one keyboard that's got that same it's like the dj keyboard did you ever have those at school where it's like dj and you could like do the random th- stuff on it. <laughs> we did but only the only the teacher was allowed to touch it because it was fancy and new oh right so oh well we we luckily in our class i mean the teacher was only allowed to touch it because as soon as the teacher turned around and faced away the the room would go silent and then you just hear dj from the back of the class and you'd be like who is it <laughs> Yeah. It would it would have let me guess like an arrangement of just like beats. Like, yeah. <laughs> and just was, do uh, that on endless. There was a voice that went, "Come on!" and "Oh yeah!" and it was just like little. Do you understand the concept of love? <laughs> <laughs> the system is down. The system is down. Yeah. So that's that's what I imagine Eric Sayer is like. But his, his soundtrack's very good. Like he is very good. But you can. There's definitely similarities between the GoldenEye soundtrack and this one. Like, did you notice that it's kind of reused? Yes. Um, actually, I'm so glad you're focusing on this because mm-hmm. you have a much stronger musical background than I in that you have one. Uh, <laughs> so you, you might have some more insight into this kind of stuff. But mu- like film scores are my favorite music yeah. uh, just because I have an inability to not hear it. Like mm-hmm. it. it it's it's part of watching movies for me. It's, same, same. I show I show up not only for the visual product. I'm also there to hear the music, mm-hmm. if it has music. Um, and yeah, absolutely. It seems like almost every film composer has quirks. Like they just have certain instruments or instrumentation that they they like to implement, or they have certain elements that seem to be like uh, cannibalized from previous works or something. Yeah. Like I've noticed a, a funny thing with uh, some of James Horner's. Uh, earlier compositions mm-hmm. uh, it seems really obvious that he was just cranking out compositions and kind of like revisited them and reworked them for whatever film he was being paid to work on at any given moment and a lot of that was just his schedule like he was working for i think roger corman in the late 80s yeah. and then he would transition from that to working on like fucking aliens mm-hmm. and glory so he would like go on to bigger and better things where it's like oh shit i better like full ass this stuff i can no longer half-ass these film compositions (laughs) but um but yeah like i think it was humanoids from the deep was like a a shitty b movie for roger corman's production Mm -hmm. studio that he did the score for and if you listen to the soundtrack for it it's like oh wow that is aliens like he he straight up ripped himself off but aliens he reworked it like we said the other day when i messaged you aliens is a rip of 2001 a space odyssey Yes, you pointed that out. Yeah, the opening, I, right? and the video's gone on YouTube, which has them back to back, and I'll, I'll find it somewhere. And if I have to make the video again myself, I will to show you. It's literally the same. But can you, you'll have to send me the Humanoids of the Deep one because I want to put all three together and we'll listen to them back to back. No, there there are definite similarities, mm-hmm. and it seems like that's part of the job. Honestly, that, like everybody ends up reusing their own material, and it seems like there's there's almost like a everybody has eras or they yeah, go through transitions yeah. like personal transitions mm-hmm. where they just want to re- they want to do a different sound like Hans Zimmer is one of the most obvious examples where he the has wonder certain that is he's a god I've seen him live I've seen him live and holy shit it was good so good no I I, I would love to do that sometime mm-hmm. uh, but the thing about Hans Zimmer is that the sheer volume of content he's put out over the years has resulted in like some stuff that's amazing, some yeah. stuff that's like you know you you have to James Horner that shit sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, so daddy's got to get paid, man. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, daddy's totally. got deadlines. Um, 
but yeah, with him, there's certain times, there's certain eras of his filmography mm-hmm. where it's like, you know, in the eighties, he, he was fully in love with his synthesizer. And if you listen to like, I think he did the score for rain man. He did. It's yeah. like, mm-hmm. it's got like world arrangements with like all sorts of like jazzy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> like all sorts of stuff like that. And like a synthesizer beat to it. But then you move on to like, 2000 you got like gladiator where it's like he's still doing a lot of electronic work but he's he has a full orchestra backing him now he has more epic sound um and then you have him collaborating with james newton howard for the dark knight and whatnot Mm -hmm. and batman begins and totally different sound there but eric serra uh is not as is it serra i don't know (laughs) no idea (laughs) eric eric serra i don't know um (laughs) I only really know him for Goldeneye, but absolutely that tone you mentioned. Um, some of the more uh, darker, like action-heavy tracks in the soundtrack feel more like Goldeneye. Like I they noticed do. that oh, noise yeah. in particular when uh, Zorg shows up at Flost in Paradise, and some of the Mangalore stuff, like mm-hmm. when they're attacking the is it the Monachewans or something? Monachewan, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a really varied soundtrack. Um, I yeah, love those kinds of soundtracks where in terms of instrumentation, it, it goes all over the place. Um, <clears throat> he didn't he didn't compose it, but the the track that they play over the cab chase, it's a song. Oh, okay. I forget what language it is, but um, it works wonderfully. Yeah, um, it's, it, it it's very uh, like reggae trumpet kind of vibe, isn't it? Yeah, it has a lot of (laughs) it's got that kind of vibe to it. But I think the lyrics, it could be like Hindi or Tamil or something. I'm not positive, Mm -hmm. but uh, it works wonderfully for that scene. But um, every other scene in the movie seems to have a different like vibe to it Mm -hmm. and different instrumentation that it works wonderfully. Um, He's one of those composers that I'm surprised he didn't do more uh, because. It could be that he, maybe he's too eclectic. Like maybe he needs a specific director to reel him in or something. Where it's just like, okay, this is a fucking mess. Like <laughs> none of this fits. Like even Goldeneye has that vibe to it. It goes all mm-hmm. over the place. It Do does. you remember the the track that plays over a uh, the car chase in the beginning with Zenya on the top and and James Bond? No, I don't think I do actually. It has like a funky electronic. It's like. Don't remember that at all. Then. <laughs> it's like it's it's like full on electro funk, um, and then you have like the early stuff that has that like that like stony like cold Eastern block vibe that makes a lot of use of that oh, noise. Yeah, reverb sound. But then yeah. it has like a it has like a '90s like club track, <laughs> like playing over it. Everyone, it's it's a very eclectic soundtrack. Um, so may- maybe he's just too weird. Maybe he's too weird for Hollywood or something. Maybe, yeah. Because like the song that he actually he performs the the outro song at the end, like that's "Little Light of Love." That's like a track that he released, and uh, that's actually oh, quite really? a good song. Yeah, he actually when he sings, he sounds a lot like Peter Gabriel or something like that. He's actually got quite a decent voice, but I've never heard anything else. I've never seen him do any other CDs or albums, so. God knows whatever else he did. I remember that being a, a radio hit over here anyway. Oh, um, right. That that particular sound in the mid to late 90s was mm-hmm. was a thing. It's like we, we kind of had that like Bjorky world kind of sound going on. Yeah. <laughs> like that, that kind of stuff was kind of big at the time. But I did not know that he's actually one of the vocalists on there. Yeah, it so. seems to be fairly common among film composers, though. Like I think Trevor Rabin was in a, a rock band at some point. 
Um, Junkie XL is kind of the big one these days. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how I feel about that fella, Mr. Tom Holkenborg. I don't really he, know much He's about done him. good stuff, but um, Mad Max Fury Road is a wonderful score. Oh, he did um, that. Right. Yes. Yes. That is a good score. It, look up the track Brothers in Arms. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's a, a banger, if you will. <laughs> Slapping <laughs> banger. <laughs> um, Batman versus Superman. He did most of the Batman stuff. It's serviceable. So the good bit of that film. <laughs> yeah. No, actually, it's quite a bit of it because I guess Hans Zimmer was all partied out on Batman. Mm-hmm. He's just like, hey, I, I did Man of Steel, but I, I did quite a bit of Batman not too long ago. Could like we get someone else here, yeah. <laughs> please? Someone who has a similar sound to me in the first place, um, just not as varied because Hans Zimmer goes all over the place. It but um, And most recently, he did uh, Godzilla vs. Kong. Uh, I haven't Tom seen it yet. Is. I've not seen that yet. Get on it. It's a fun one. It's it's okay. check your brain at the door, but you'll have fun with it. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but where where are we going, Harrison? We're all over the fucking place. I don't fucking know. This is like the Street Fighter episode all over again. <laughs> yeah, it seems to happen. Uh, Harrison, you bring out the, I don't know, the weird tangents in me. I'm but, sorry. <laughs> um, were there any other particular scenes you wanted to, to key in on? Or did you have anything mm-hmm. to say about Lilu and Mila Jovovich? Or Jovovich, rather? Uh, no. <laughs> no, I do. <laughs> no. She's uh, you, you she, mean the the titular fifth element? Nah, yeah, leave, nah. We can leave her out. No, she she's cool in this. I, I do like her. I I find her weirdly fascinating to watch. I think this was the first film that I had seen her in. I wish I hadn't seen her in the Resident Evil films, unfortunately, because they got they got pretty bad towards the end. Let's say, uh, but she, you know, she's good in this, and she sort of embodies this unusual character that you're following through the world and it's obviously made stronger by the fact that she doesn't really talk for the first half of the film well she does in her her own language which they actually made her and luke besson and they used to send letters to each other didn't they which is probably sexy letters i imagine uh but yeah i i found her good i found her as fascinating as the character as lilu because she looks so unusual with this mandarin colored hair i just I think that was one of the facts that made me want to know more. Like, why was she in this sarcophagus? Why, why is she like she is? And like, like, where do you stand on it? Like, do, were you as fascinated by her as I was? Yeah, I think she's a very compelling performer when she's given the right material to work mm-hmm. with. Um, obviously, working with her husband on those Resident Evil movies, uh, maybe she really gets off on doing the stunt work because it seems like she does quite a bit of that. Maybe yeah. that's just straight up fun for her. And, you know, she and her husband get to hang out on the set. So that's a that's a pretty fucking good job to have. Yeah, you guys are paying <laughs> spend your other people's though. money, spend other people's money, uh, train in in martial arts, and uh, get paid. <laughs> it's not a bad way to live, honestly. No, not at all. Oh yeah, and hang out with your significant other every day on production. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But um, as far as I know, she was strictly a model before this. Yes. Um, I don't believe she was an actress coming into it, but she was scouted like rigorous process i think they had like thousands of candidates a few hundred of which uh luc besson actually met with um so she lucked out um but a lot of it has to do with like the rawness of her performance like maybe being a non-actor helped in this regard yeah or like there's certain things that maybe you try to dress up a little bit more if you have a traditional theater background or something Mm mm-hmm um, but she gives like a very raw performance and a lot of it, I hate to say it does just come down to her look. Um, she does really yeah. 
Im- really ably embody that that look of a person who you simultaneously want to help but are also a little bit in awe of um yeah I get and that's mean. that's yeah. something that's something that yeah acting ability can help you with that but sometimes you just have to have a certain way about yeah you there, there was something about that like the way she was chosen that she luke besson said that she was chosen because she could look like she could be of many different ethnicities so she is this like i don't know like she is a pinnacle of all different aspects of different races of people i guess but she never comes across like even though corbin dallas helps her in the film she is a very strong character and she makes a point of saying like no i protect you and she obviously can handle herself like even though like the characters want to help her she can do a lot herself which is quite nice and it's not shoved in your face at all really that she's like you know that the strong powerful woman kind of thing it's not like are you seeing that she's strong and she's powerful and a woman it's like she just does it and it's kind of nice and it was done you know in the 90s which is refreshing yeah uh, <laughs> i hate to say it but there is a certain way of doing that where it can come across as a little artificial i guess yeah hollywood do this thing where they're very pandering they're like look how woke we're being and it's like stop drawing attention to it and just do it yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to open up this particular can of worms because no, I get no. blasted for it. But uh, <laughs> Captain Marvel, the "I'm Just a Girl" sequence, I was like, that's a little on the nose, don't you think? Like in terms of music cues, I know we're doing a '90s thing, but it's like it's it's a it's yeah, it, it's something that a computer program would would churn out. Yeah, it's like yeah. how like how do we achieve this emotional response with with the editing of our film? It's like, well, mm-hmm. take this song and put it over a sequence of a lady punching people. That'll work, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like, uh, give that guy a promotion. I, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's a fucking like Apple II. Yeah. <laughs> it's like just like wearing a suit. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, she she gives a very very solid performance, especially for kind mm-hmm. of a, a rookie to the to this particular medium. Totally. Um, and one thing that seems to be common throughout her filmography that uh, I want to say, like Charlize Theron, who's obviously a more accomplished actress, mm-hmm. uh, has in common with her is uh, the willingness to render yourself like unattractive or just like mm-hmm. a- allow yourself to not be glamorized. Because yeah. not everybody has that in them, men or women or whatever. Um, and that seems to be a thing that she maybe enjoys. Like she takes a lot of not so glamorous roles, despite you know being a like common idea a model, of a beautiful yeah, person yeah yeah, yeah. Well, um, it's, that's something you see a lot though like i've you know I, I do photography i've worked with models i work in tv production myself um as a, like a freelance basis weirdly enough i've got a story in a moment that i'll, I'll get to after after this point uh and i know for a fact that a lot of models have told me personally that they don't really enjoy it they don't like the getting all dolled up and the makeup and everyone looking at and it's like it might be that she actually, from stepping away from being a professional model to this, prefers those realistic roles where she doesn't have to be like the 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 model icon. Do you know what I mean? So she likes something that's a bit more real in that aspect. So I think that's perfectly reasonable for her. Yeah, but um, what was the story you said you wanted to share? Oh, shit, yeah. Sorry, I completely forgot because <laughs> I was on that other thought. Uh, there's a guy in this movie who... In the, he's one of the scientists who works for the president. Uh, yes. He has a bit of a funny eye. You may know him. He's got. He looks like he's got very tight eyelids. 
Yeah. You know, he, he's, I can't remember what his, his name is. Anyway, I watched this movie and the next day I went to work on a TV production and I'm stood in the breakfast queue and I look to my left and he is there. I'm stood next to him. I remember he was called Valentine in the, in the TV show I was working on. And we had quite a nice chat. And I was like, you know what? I watched The Fifth Element last night. And he was like, that was great fun to work on. And I was like, I bet it was. It's one of my favorite movies. And we sat and had breakfast together. And he ate sausages and marmalade together on a sandwich. And I was like, that is a very weird sandwich you're eating there, mate. And he was like, it is wonderful. And you know what? I tried it the next day and he was right. It was wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Pro tip from a character actor on the set of a massive blockbuster film there you go i'll ha- i'll have to try that sometime because i never would have thought to combine those yeah. things orange marmalade and pork sausages <laughs> very interesting <laughs> um but yeah mila jovovich she uh she kind of gives her all to this performance i i want to say that she enjoys like physicality in mm-hmm. in the roles that she selects like i never saw it but she did that joan of arc film the messenger um, that which was is just a- another this, one wasn't it? yes yeah it was I very shortly after this no. And again, you know, portrayed in a not so glamorous fashion involves medieval fucking sword fighting and whatnot. Yep. So, and obviously the Resident Evil movies, and even like what was it, uh, Zoolander? She even I think throws hands in was that at in least that? once. I didn't know she was in that. I believe she's uh, like the the right hand mistress to uh, Will Ferrell's character. Oh, okay. She even I think that she's was a her. singer as well. She actually sang on a a Pussifer track. What's oh. it called now? Which is the singer from Tool and A Perfect Circle. He, it's his third band. His other other band. Uh, yeah, she sang on one of his tracks. Oh wow! Yeah. So she's massively accomplished in her lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, these days, uh, she seems to be doing. Uh, I mean, she just did Monster Hunter, but she also did some production not in China, but it's a Chinese production where they put her face as big as like. <laughs> Big as life on the cover. I don't know yeah. how much of it she's in. Probably 10, 15 minutes. Um, but it seems like she's approaching that level of her career. <laughs> where it's right, like, right. okay, we're going to start working in, in overseas markets or direct-to-video markets or something. But hey, she's still got her hubby, and those Resident Evil movies generally make money. Can't speak for Monster Hunter. I imagine it did well enough. But um, another major element of the cast, though, is uh, Chris Tucker. Yes. Um, who I think most people... Uh, he's he seems like a, a strong subject for debate because some people it's like he is massively annoying in this film why is he here but for me it's like he actually does a pretty good job of like speeding up the edit of the movie so we can get from place to place pretty quickly he's a plot um, and the energy he br- he brings is kind of perfect for immediately preceding the opera <laughs> yeah yeah it is yeah it makes that like like we said before the breath that little break in the film just hit even harder because of how manic he is through it like i i enjoy his character i i think he's funny like i i liked him and i think i saw him in rush hour first before i saw this uh so like i knew the character and when i saw him i was like oh it's this guy i I remember liking him as a kid i think he was quite funny because of how like animated he is and he's obviously i think his character is based on michael jackson isn't he uh i mean probably a little bit yeah (laughs) With the hair of uh, someone pointing this out on a video, the hair of Egon from the the Ghostbusters cartoon. He's got like the the, the real the, Ghostbusters. Yeah, the real yeah. Ghostbusters. Yeah, that's yeah, right. The yeah. real Ghostbusters. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, he's I, like I one part character. Prince, one part Michael Jackson. He is, yeah, and like Prince was going to play him, and so it was like Lenny Kravitz was in talks to play him for a little bit. But I think Chris Tucker does great as him, and 
I <laughs> before every podcast, like I I channel this. Like that's the that's the energy I, I I want. Have like a portable podcast where you can run down corridors with your little microphone on. That's what I'm gonna do in the future. <laughs> I'm just picturing Harrison running up and down the halls of his home, singing all night long. All <laughs> night long, all night. I think I've actually done that exactly. on a few episodes. I wouldn't doubt it. You did that pretty perfectly. So obviously it's a, a practiced rendition of the Lionel Richie song. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I really dug Chris Tucker in this as well, even as a yeah. kid. Like, like he didn't derail things for me. I thought he was fun. The the movie kind of like succumbs to his, his uh, gravitas. His rod, yes. <laughs> to his golden rod. Yeah. His golden red-headed rod. <laughs> um. Because, like, the edit of the film, it's almost like he, like, grabs the console and he says, no, we're doing it this way. Because <laughs> all of his scenes, like, at least the scenes when he's broadcasting anyway, when mm-hmm. he's in full-on, like, Ruby Rod mode, are are shot and cut so differently from the rest of the movie. Are, and yeah. I think it's out of necessity where it's like, what the fuck do we do with this guy? He's he's just a ball of energy. And I love the, the, the interplay he has with... Uh, with Corbin Dallas, yeah, like yeah. shoving the mic in his face and wanting to get that that sweet audio something, sample, that yeah. that sound bite, something. Yeah. And I was actually surprised, Harrison. Like when I asked where your hype level's at, like at the beginning of this recording, proper response would have been thrill, 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 thrill. thrill, thrill, thrill. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, my uh, man, just, are you nervous in the service? Uh, not really. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's brilliant. That's where the deadpan really comes in handy. But um, in addition to that, though, like something that occurred to me as I was watching the film this time is that him having a live radio show in mm-hmm. 2300 or whatever. Sure, we're still using. <laughs> yeah. Um, is is actually really helpful uh, to the edit and the progression of the plot uh, because it, mm-hmm. it gives it gives all the people outside of the action a reason to be to be privy to what's happening yeah so we have we're we're cutting back and forth between all the all the action all the gunfighting happening at Faust in paradise and the president's office and the only reason they're aware of the moment-to-moment actions is because he's broadcasting live it's like oh wow that's a really handy tool for integrating all all of these disparate elements i was like that's that's solid. Good job, writer or whoever. Yeah, I never thought even, up that idea. Never even thought about that really. That yeah, they set him up with that so they could monitor him while he was on the mission. Yeah, I didn't even think that. It's it's funny, like the way that uh, Ruby Rod is is introduced. Like you said about him being a ball of energy. It's he's in that corridor, isn't he, Corbin Dallas? And he's talking with the the flight attendant, saying like, "I need to find this person. I need to speak to the diva." And then he just slides in at the corridor, and it's like. And it just like zooms in on him. Yeah, he's uh, and he's hype men. If you look at the the face of the tall, like half bald guy, he's like. Yeah. And when I say half, I mean like vertically shaved for you listeners. Like he's got half a shaved head. His eyebrows and his he's the most extra person I have ever seen living, and I love it. He's so good. Yeah, it's pretty I, incredible. It is. And they they have their their future terminology for cool. Or, yeah. or super green or it's green yeah super yeah. green <laughs> yeah but you mean green like what oh crystal oh crystal crystal green 
Yeah, and as as the camera's pulling back from that sequence, you can actually hear them still. Still going. Like, yeah. I think they say bog green at one bog, point. Oh, really? I've missed that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're just listing off different variations of green. I think one of them says bog, you know, bog green. <laughs> Nice. Fucking yeah. it's, his it's, his entourage is pretty great. great I love yeah. I love when all the gun the guns start going off and we cut to them being pulled away from him. Yeah. Ruby, Ruby, my boy, <laughs> Ruby. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. There's actually another actor in in this in the moment of Fost and Paradise that when you said yeah. about actors you might not know he's the like the cabin boy who's showing the diva to to a room. That's Lee Evans, and he's a Welsh comedian, and he is so funny. Another guy I've seen live, very, very good comedian, sweats ungodly amounts on stage. I remember one of his jokes, he's like, what I need is guttering. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, that's that's awesome. Um, I didn't know his name, mm-hmm. but I, I know him from Mouse Hunt. Yes, he's in Mouse Hunt. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, it's Gore Verbinski's Mouse Hunt, which is... A great film, if you ask me, mm-hmm. um, from an audiovisual standpoint, and he and Nathan Lane together, oh, just yeah, fantastic. Uh, the two of them just have such good chemistry and energy. But um, I only know him as an actor. I didn't know he was a stand-up artist, but uh, and a musician. It sounds like he's mm-hmm. he's wow. Uh, he's massively accomplished outside of his his yeah. foray into film, at least American cinema, anyway. Um, but yeah, all he is is just like a cabin boy here and. He serves his purpose well. Yeah. Like yeah. He, he punctuates one of the, the most famous trailer moments uh, from the movie. Uh, that would be, we're sending somebody in <laughs> yeah. to negotiate. Um, you know, that line would not have yeah. worked as well if it wasn't him delivering it with no, his, no. you know, fidgety, sweaty energy. Yeah, he, he, he's so, he's even sweaty in this. He's, it's the way, he, sending somebody to negotiate. And he's like, oh, fucking hell. <laughs> it's like how shifty well, he is. <laughs> even the way that scene begins, he, he's like, he's futzing with a, a pistol yeah like, and i don't know think he knows how like, no, <laughs> like no. i don't think he knows how to cock it or something because no. he's just like yanking on part of it <laughs> he's he's great no i i perk up when i see him unfortunately through my american lens he doesn't mm-hmm. pop up on my radar very often um but he's always welcome for sure um in terms of other familiar faces though um, ones that i noticed uh were the general of course uh, mm-hmm. two different generals actually um, Brian James uh, is one of the big ones. Uh, so okay. he's the general that comes to visit uh, Corbin Dallas at his apartment. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. He's normally not a comedic actor. However, in oh. this film, he he has chops. Like, he could have been a comedic actor if if he didn't have that look about him. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, he, he usually plays heavies. He's the bad guy, isn't he? Yeah, my dad told me about that. said he always used to play bad guys in 80s movies. Yeah, he's in Blade Runner, in fact. Um, oh shit! He's yeah, the replicant he that gets the eye test. Um, yeah, the star. In the, like, yeah, opening basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he was also in Enemy Mine, where he's only in like the last scenes of the movie, but he's just there to be a scummy villain. And right. sadly, his his look, you know, it's he doesn't have any depth of character. You just see him on screen with a scar on his face, and you're like, yeah, he's probably bad. <laughs> he's a big guy. <laughs> yeah, he's a big guy. He looks mean. <laughs> and yeah, um, also the other general. Um, the one who shoots Mr. Shadow. Um, the without... manicured man from the X-Files. Correct, sir. Mm-hmm. Um, I am actually looking forward to digging my way all the way through the X-Files because I saw part of the first season and the movie, but that's about the extent of it. However, I liked everything I saw. Oh, so my I just... God. I am so excited because I have just done the same thing. I am up to, really? se- I'm up to season seven. I've just binged it the past 
it must be only like two months and I've I've been watching two episodes a day once with my breakfast and once when I get in bed I love it absolutely love it that's why we've started doing that Federal Bureau of Weird we were talking about before that's where this is coming from yeah you'll I want to know everything that you think about it well you heard it here you heard it here folks Federal Bureau of Weird yes there's going to be X-Files chatting but um <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm really excited to dig through it because uh I've I liked everything I saw of it I can't tell you why I didn't mm-hmm. finish it I just you know life got in the way or something but uh John Neville is the name of this actor and yeah. uh he's he was very very good from what i saw of the Mm x-files um another fella that i i noticed and he is in i think exactly one shot of this movie and i i I love when this happens like that that's how you can tell i'm a a kind of a movie dork (laughs) is i gave myself a pat on the back because he's in one shot he says one line and i was like a pone like that that is sergeant a pone really and al matthews is the fella's name and he has one line in this film, and he has one shot to himself. And I was like, "That is Sergeant Apone from Aliens." <laughs> it's I like, never even like ten years Aliens. after the fact. He's in one shot, Harrison. Oh, <laughs> like, I'm also a big dork. I thought I would have noticed it. <laughs> well, he he's just on camera for one shot, and I was like, "I know, I know that particular timber. Like, yeah. I know that voice." And uh, Hudson, come here, come, come here. here, look into <laughs> my eye. <laughs> assholes and elbows (laughs) yeah no i was so happy that i i I called it like i was like yep i know that guy um there were a couple other ones that i i was actually kind of disappointed i got wrong Uh, one was corbin dallas's mother um, who is only in this film via voiceover um repeated phone calls she never call me anymore (laughs) (laughs) she's played by nobody in particular as far as i know Mm -hmm. um I, I looked them up on IMDb. It's credited to somebody who literally just has this. Um, I thought it was Marla from uh, Gremlins 2. Uh, she has a particular yeah. New, York vi- New York vibe to her yeah. voice that's kind of fit. And similar to that, uh, some of the PA announcements in this film I thought were the same guy from, from the clamp building in Gremlins 2. <laughs> fire! The untamed element! <laughs> this building is on fire! <laughs> I thought it, I thought it was the same guy. I couldn't... I couldn't check if it was actually him, but yeah, there's a lot of sci-fi veterans in this film. In, you also in like you didn't say roles. where Apone is, by the way. You didn't say what scene he's in. Like, you need to tell the list where we need to look out for him. Oh well, if you want to ramble for a bit, I can look up the time code for you, maybe. Yeah, sure, go um, for it. I uh, I always I'm just gonna go on a little ramble about Apone to be honest from Aliens because go for it. I feel like. And correct me if I'm wrong. Listeners, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. Send me an email. My email's before, creepyatogema.com. Is he the the point in time that started the, like, angry black sergeant with the mustache who smokes the cigar? Because then it went into, like, Halo as well. It was, like, Sergeant Johnson. It's the same guy. And I, I want to know where this started. I feel like it's aliens, but I'm never really sure. Because he's such like a, a standout character in Aliens, and I wish he was in it just a little bit longer, because I, I love him. Yeah, if I had to guess, uh, he was the originator of that. I found him. Uh, he's in more than one shot, actually. Oh, um, wow. He, he only has one line, though, as far as I know. Um, around one hour, 19 minutes, and 15 seconds is when he first appears on screen. He's just making a frowny face. Um <laughs> see if i can get to the point where he speaks um but 
yeah, I want to say that Apone was probably the originator of yeah. that, and the Halo version of the character seems like more than likely like a riff on that, like a direct yeah. nod to Apone because he was such an iconic character. He even makes the and same noise. Like, there's a moment where. Uh, when he sees them all dressed up and he's like, a load of badasses. And then he goes, ah, like even Sergeant Johnson does that in Halo. He does the exact same noise. <laughs> well, I haven't actually checked um, who does the voice of the character from Halo, um, but maybe it's, maybe it's the same guy. Oh, uh, one, one hour, 20 minutes and 57 seconds. We lost it. We lost the signal. That's it. That's it for really, a That's all he says. That's all he says, but he he is appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> Al Matthews, salute yeah. to you, sir, because you are like every word you said in Aliens is crystallized in my memory forevermore. Yes. <laughs> oh, um, totally off topic. Not that we had one to begin Shocking. with, but I, I had two things to ask you about, and then I think I'm out of material. So first thing. No when Mr. Shadow talks to people mm-hmm. or when Mr. Shadow rears his ugly head, there's a thing that happens on two separate occasions in this film, and that would be a dark, viscous lo- liquid oozing from people's faces or heads. Yes. What is your take on that? Because I have, I have my own, but I don't know if I've ever heard an explanation for this, nor do I actually need one. I'm mm. just curious. When I, I remember looking at it as a kid and as someone who suffered from a lot of nosebleeds, I was like, oh, he's just making them believe. Like, I thought he was that evil that the signal that was coming through the phone was just making them bleed. But then I remember being baffled by it because when Zorg wipes his head, there's no, like, cut. There's no source of this blood or whatever it is. So I was never really sure whether it was blood or not. And from hearing what other people think about it, they seem to say that it's just when someone is under the influence of Mr. Shadow, that becomes apparent on their being. Like, it's like pure darkness because they're in control. So Zorg is obviously in control by Mr. Shadow to get the stones. Because at the end of the day, like, what does Zorg get out of getting the stones? Because the guy wants to destroy Mr. Shadow. I don't know how we have to call him Mr. He's just a fireball, but you know what I mean? Like, what does y- Unicron? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Unicron. What does he? What does um, Zorg get out of destroying life? Because he is a part of life. And then the other guy who it happens to, um, the manicured man from X Files, as we said previously, he is only serving the purpose to make Mister Shadow stronger by shooting him with missiles. So it's like it's giving him power. So it's like he's under control to keep firing at him, and that's why he's continuing firing. So I, I, I don't, don't know. I don't, I don't know if I agree with that. Yeah. Like, um, what what do you think? The, I'm interested. Well, the, the the visual information, like the math equation of mm-hmm. the edit, doesn't really have that result in my head. Yeah. Because um, he was he was shooting the thing before he started oozing from the head. Nor do I feel that Zorg is under anyone's control. Okay. Zorg is a monster, and and the whole. That whole dialogue exchange he has with Ian Holm in his office, uh, mm-hmm. he has a whole speech about um, destruction, breeding progress, or, or breeding yeah. activity, basically. He, he smashes a glass on his floor, and then he summons a bunch of Roombas to clean up after <laughs> Look it. Look at all these little things says, now. <laughs> <laughs> I like the little uh, 
the creature with a trunk that comes yeah, out yeah. of his uh his desk <laughs> he's like signaling i'm choking on a cherry and it starts laughing yeah, at him. it's like <laughs> yeah it's like what do you want me to do <laughs> it's pretty great but like that whole speech to me spoke to him having agency like he's not under mm-hmm. mr shadow's influence he actually believes that like destruction will allow him to profit from it in some fashion okay um I I can't recall if there are if there's like some muddled terminology in the film. I don't know. I think they mostly say universe when they talk about the scale of the destruction, like all life. Um, I don't know how that would happen from a ball impacting a singular planet, um, mm. but they do say universe oftentimes when they're talking about the stakes of how much life, how many lives will be extinguished if Mister Shadow gets his way. Um, so maybe maybe Zorg isn't aware of that. like it's not just it's not just this planet because obviously this future we're in is is interplanetary so Mm -hmm. he could just be like oh if i hop on a plane and go to floss in paradise and earth gets blown away then earth's gone i'm alive yeah little does Uh, he know mr shadow works like a ping pong ball it's like (laughs) between all the planets (laughs) (laughs) yeah maybe he's not aware of that but it seems to be the case that he knows he knows what he's getting into he knows Mm -hmm. what he's doing maybe he doesn't have a whole picture but I feel like he he has control of himself. And same with the general. My theory was just that, like, the sheer evil, like, force of Mr. Shadow is such that it, instil- it instills, like, a feeling of fear that's, like, beyond emotional or psychological. It's, like, also manifests physically or something. Oh, okay. That, that's just a guess, but obviously there's no real answer as far mm-hmm. as I know. But I, I never thought for a second that Mr. Shadow was controlling people because mm-hmm. um, if that was part of the plot then it's like a simple question of like why isn't he just control more people like, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah well that's what i thought when someone mentioned it but yeah i suppose like that the manifesting kind of makes sense when when he does wipe his head and it shows that there's no blood uh, sorry no uh, source of the blood i do really like how scared zorg is of mr shadow when he's on the phone there's a sudden moment because um, obviously, like Mr. Shadow is eating all the satellites, isn't it? It's like sucking up all the communication satellites, and then to make a phone call. <laughs> yeah, my my friend who uh, likes his marmalade and sausage sandwiches says, uh, "Well, maybe he's trying to make a phone call." And then he's like, "Where are you?" Like he he says it with that cadence. He's like, "Where are you?" And he's like, "Not far now." And it's like, "Oh, it's fuck. pretty great." Yeah, I I like that moment just for the change you see in Gary Oldman's character because he's a great actor. Like he is, he's fucking brilliant. He in everything he's in, he's good. But yeah, that moment's great. Yeah, and it, it allows him to do some some flexing as an mm-hmm. actor, show that he can give a multi-dimension performance. Because every other exchange we see Zorg in, he's very much in control. He f- he doesn't fear guns being pointed at him. Um, we do see him also do a lot of like straight up comedy in the film in the form of mm-hmm. his line deliveries, and also being you know nearly asphyxiated by, or killed by a cherry. cherry yeah. Um, yeah cherry <laughs> um it's it's pretty great and i did like that mr shadow is not used excessively as a character like he's yeah. he's more of just a presence and the film cuts back to him only as often as it needs to like mm-hmm. it, it would get really annoying really fast if we constantly cut back to yeah. oh what are the fireball. spaceships doing parked <laughs> parked in front of the fireball it's like well it's it's a fireball what do you want <laughs> like, it's not doing shit it's just you know steadily moving and growing bigger Sorry, I don't have a cool story want. to go with that. 
Yeah. By the way, uh, the president of the universe in this film, mm. uh, Tony Lister or Tommy Lister, mm-hmm. uh, aka Debo uh, from Friday, uh, yep. who was also a co-star with Chris Tucker. I always loved that casting. Like, yeah, I'm always great. happy to see him. He's unfortunately passed away as well, so that makes me very, very sad. Has he passed away? Yeah, Debo. Debo has gone to the great beyond oh, uh, to his great that. reward. Uh, he is sorely missed because he's he's a wonderful screen presence and mm-hmm. roles like this. I don't know how he was cast for this role, but somehow it it works really it does. well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it's it's kind of awesome having President Debo, President yeah. of the Universe, not just the United States or what have you, the entire universe, <laughs> and it works so well. I don't know. I don't know why. Like I'm whoever did the casting for that role, like hats off to you because damn yeah that, that was inspired never in a million years would i have ever expected that no um but it paid off it does <laughs> it, it, he seems like a pretty decent president as well which is kind of cool like at the end when he's setting everything up but there's the there's the one moment where it cuts to him when he's shaking his shoe on the desk he's just shaking his shoe it, and then the cockroach yeah, crawls casually. and he squashes it with his shoe and the guy's headphones fire off that that's another cut editing moment that I think is really funny. Where he's like, ah, and he's like, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's pretty great. Like the only reason he's doing that is so he has an excuse to smash the cockroach. Yeah. But like from a manners standpoint, it's like, dude, do you really got to like do that yeah. with like a room full of generals and priests and stuff? <laughs> like, I don't want to smell your feet while we're having an important like universe dependent <laughs> like meeting yeah. going on. Um, but last question I had for you, Harrison. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm out of ideas. Is uh, the ending sequence uh, with the in the temple? Yes. Uh, what did you think of this one? I liked it in the the aspect. Again, it's another moment of it's the climax, and then it like it's it doesn't scream to a halt in a bad way. It slows itself to make that moment more poignant. And I feel like I've used that word a lot tonight. Poignant. It's like one of my favorite words. Uh, because they all realize, and the priest who has studied this for all of his life, realize that he doesn't know how to activate the stones. So they place them in all the, the points. Lilu's in the center, and no one knows how to do anything. And it's all thanks to the character we haven't even mentioned yet, David, with his little swirly turd hat that he's wearing, which <laughs> gave me a lot of entertainment as a kid. His uh, Devo cap. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's all thanks to him going over it and literally sighing on it saying we're not going to make it <sighs> luckily he got the air one what if he got the fire one he'd be fucked wouldn't he? Was, everything would have been destroyed <laughs> Mr. Shadow would have been ping ponging around the universe in no time <laughs> so I, I like it for that fact because it's it's almost it almost rides the line of cliche like fire needs fire water needs water but you don't expect it to be that way because the rest of the film has been painted as so unusual and every you're not expecting all these different things to happen. That almost seems like it's too simple of a thing. And it seems like that's why the characters themselves don't understand that that's why that's the thing they've got to do. What what about you? What do you what do you think about it? Uh, I'm glad you brought, you brought up the simplicity of it because mm. it it calls back to the idea of this being like a story that began thousands of years ago because yeah. apparently this is a cycle which you know probably would factor into any potential sequels of 5,000 years every 5,000 years evil descends on on the earth and we have mm-hmm. to counter it with the fifth element um, 
and it's it's that like simple intrinsic like elemental mythic storytelling that that makes stories really resonate with people like i mean uh star wars famously is derived from the monomyth um mm-hmm. and it's it's that kind of universality of the storytelling that that makes some of makes some of it land a little bit harder than than otherwise uh, because in terms of like details this movie is kind of batshit crazy mm-hmm. but if you break it down to its like core points it's it's not out it's not totally out of this world and then i think it's fitting that we begin this this film actually in a flashback in 1914 yeah and then we close in the same location 300 years later and it kind of like brings it full circle where it's like this is yes we've we've had all sorts of colorful adventures all over the galaxy with all sorts of aliens and mm-hmm. neat props and stuff but at the end of the day this is this is an ancient tale that yeah. you know these ex- these similar circumstances have probably played out multiple like every 5000 years for quite some time uh, so it's only fitting that it ends almost like childishly simple. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. And th- there's actually a moment that we didn't touch on, like that I was thinking about from the start, the, the very first scene we see when uh, the <laughs> the archaeologist is looking over the, the hieroglyphics on the wall. And there's a cut when it it's right at the end of the scene after the Mondachi one puts his hand through the wall and says, you know, uh, time is important, only life. And then it shows the the hieroglyphic of the three planets aligning to this like central point, and then it chain it cuts to a digital readout of the planets aligning, and it is again a huge reference to two thousand and one, which we spoke about today with the bone and then the nuclear missile silo with the cut. It's like a perfect like oh I see where you're going there with that giant time cut, and it was a perfect like reference within a reference, and. I don't know. I, I think that, like we said, that it, it is very simple, but it, it just totally works. And I think, um, I don't even know, it, it's almost up to Lilu's choice whether to save everyone. And it goes down to the point that the fifth element, is the fifth element love? Is that what we're supposed to believe? I'm not entirely certain on that. Yeah, or is it something to live for? Like all all of the uh everything seems to point to her, mm. like something about her physical being being the fifth element, but yeah, I I see what you mean though. It easily could just be a concept or or a element of will or something that actually is the titular fifth element. I'm not positive what the definition is mm. on that. Um, the film doesn't spell it out to you. It just kind of like no. says, "Here's a thing. Here's a here's a laser beam. <laughs> you go nuts." <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that that whole sequence is really cut together in a really poignant way, mm, as, you, is, as yeah. you put it. It's a hard word to say. Yeah. It's probably why you like saying poignant. Poignant. Because yeah, it, the editing of it is much. It's dire. Like we're. We're, we have a constant countdown uh, mm-hmm. leading up to everybody hustling around the temple trying to assemble these stones and whatnot. Um, but in terms of like energy, it the cuts aren't like super rapid fire. We're not doing like some Michael Bay horse shit. Or, or I, was it Olivier Megaton? Uh, <laughs> I think he was the fella that did a Taken 3 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there's that infamous Liam Neeson hops a fence, oh, the fence clip. 150 clips, whatever it is. Yeah, the dit, 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 for every angle. Oh my god, it gives me such a headache yeah. <laughs> just to look at that. I remember seeing that movie in the theater and just being like, "Oh my god, what the <laughs> fuck was that? How hard is that?" But, um, yeah, you're right. I, I'm surprised David didn't come up because he's mm-hmm. in a lot of scenes in this movie. He's kind of like an apprentice to Ian Holm. Um, but I love that they gave him a payoff because he's yeah. functionally useless for most of the film. And it's only through him adhering to his nature yeah. as like an exasperated assistant to a guy who believes in a religion that until this very moment didn't pay off for anything. Yeah. Um, he breathes his heavy sigh and opens the, the wind uh, stone. Uh, so it's like, hey, David got a payoff. Good for him. Yeah, because yeah, he fucked up Egypt. every other time. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to go to Egypt. <laughs> And then, like, when uh, Corbin Dallas... I love that exchange at the airport with uh, yeah. Corbin Dallas. Like, all the Corbin Dallases. Yeah. <laughs> we get David Corbin Dallas. We get Bruce Willis Corbin Dallas. We get uh, the Mangalore Corbin Dallases. Yeah. And we get uh, the, the Massive, Massive Attack, Attack Corbin Dallas. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's four, it's isn't pretty, there? Yeah, I forgot about the yeah. Mangalore guy doing it as well. It's pretty great. I like when he, um, he guides David away. And he's like, he was just coming to get my ticket. Goodbye now. Thank you. And he, like, pushes him away. <laughs> <laughs> I like how David's reaction is I thought he was going to kill me <laughs> like, like what gave you that impression <laughs> but okay but um, it's kind of funny that uh, Ruby Rod is still with them with the yeah, yeah. because after the Mangalore situation is extinguished in the form of Anknot getting shot between the eyes um, there's like a break in the action mm-hmm. where like all the Faustin Paradise people are kind of like collecting themselves and then they have to evacuate and whatnot. But Ruby Rod, for some for some reason, shows up at the diva's suite and finds the bomb with them. And it's like, mm-hmm. why are you here? And, <laughs> and I guess you're coming along. Yeah, you're coming along now, yeah. <laughs> and it's not like he really contributes anything other than flavor to the to the climax of the film. But I'm still kind of glad he's there. Uh, Col- Colbin, I have I have no fire. I have no fire. <laughs> <laughs> also, I I like the the payoff with the the smoking. Um, yeah. This is something that Kyle would have noticed probably mm-hmm. much more strongly than myself. Uh, he's he's big on drinking and smoking in movies. Like he, yes. he keys in on what people are drinking and what people are smoking and the circumstances in which they do those things. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, I love the prop design in the movie where uh, as soon as Corbin wakes up, we get all these individual shots of all, all of his belongings. And it's mm-hmm. like, future! Where it's just spelled out to you that <laughs> everything in this movie is going to be not from your time yeah to quit is my goal (laughs) (laughs) yeah i love that that he wakes up and part of his alarm clock is he has a gadget in his apartment that allots him like four cigarettes yeah they drop down don't they yeah yeah it that's like on his road to quitting i guess i guess you get an allotment like like he can't Mm -hmm. like hack it and like open it up and just jack a whole bunch of cigarettes from he just gets four for that day um, and he is smoking at several points in the film, and by the time we get to the end of it, the smoking thing provides an excuse for as to why he would have a match, mm-hmm. um, and him only having one leads to this really cool moment that it's so basic, and yet I found myself holding my breath even now watching this moment where he strikes the match, and it's the yeah. only one anyone in the room has. <laughs> he says, don't breathe, and then somebody, somebody probably had a little air sprayer just yeah. out of frame going to, to make the flame flicker and they probably fucked it up a lot <laughs> Luc Besson probably chewed them out yeah <laughs> I, I actually just had a sudden fear that hit me the his techno his techno powered apartment 
doesn't feed his cat because he yeah, says, yeah. I forgot to get your food. Yeah. Who's looking after the cat? Oh, well, it's only been 48 hours. Is Oh, yeah, it's quite short time space. It, yeah, that's, that's a really funny part of the edit of this movie that we have scenes like the opera where we just kind of kick back and hang out for God knows how long. And yet we are operating on a 48 hour timetable. Yeah. Like when, when uh, Ian Holm was talking to president Debo, mm-hmm. it, he tells him like, we have, you have 48, 48 hours. hours so right, everything yes. that happens in the film beyond that happens over two days. I was going to say, I was, I was hoping it would be the Chinese guy. You know, the guy with the boat who comes to the window. I, I love that guy. I think he's so cool. And he opens it up. He's like, Hey, and he like, floats up with his things and he's like but you got mail you better open that <laughs> and he's like you, you are, are fired, fired. <laughs> <laughs> he's like at least i won lunch <laughs> yeah. fortune for you um i see if kyle was here we would both mutually exchange um uncle benny uh i know him as yeah. uncle benny from lethal weapon 4 oh is that um, him he's delightful in lethal weapon 4 <laughs> right, right. Uh, there's a scene where uh, danny uh, Danny Glover and Mel Gibson are interrogating him in a dentist's chair, and they uh, they turn up they turn up the laughing gas, and everyone in the room gets shit faced on. <laughs> so they're just like uncontrollably laughing and trying to interrogate him. It's pretty great. I haven't seen um, *Lethal Weapon* four. I I, I'm not, I think I've only seen the first two. Uh, three is the only one that that veers close to being bad. Okay. Uh, it's one of the strongest like quadrilogies of films i can think of like wow. in terms of like consistent quality mm-hmm. like two is the one that i think is universally accepted as the best yeah one is very good three is almost bad but still good mm-hmm. and then four is good like it's Sweet. legit pretty good Sweet. i really liked it and it 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 ends i hope it ended uh, i don't need a lethal weapon five i know they made that that tv series with a brand new cast and stuff i didn't touch that thing with a 10 foot pole because i am not interested but lethal weapon four is a delightful end to a, a very solid film series cool. it's one of the first dvds i ever bought nice and as as a man who has watched many films and many bad films that's a quite highly rated coming from you trevor <laughs> I don't know. I mostly watch bad films. <laughs> so, like, I don't know. Maybe my standards are all fucked. <laughs> they probably are, honestly. <laughs> Any two is like a five in your book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it's like, oh my god, there were no boom mics in any shots. <laughs> like five <laughs> <is> stars. <laughs> well, Harrison, did you have anything else you wanted to get into about the Fifth Element? Uh, I think I am happy. I have gone through my notes. I think. And I think I am happy to end it there. Yeah, I think I got everything. Um, hopefully Kyle will be proud of this one. I know he he very much wanted to be part of this conversation. Unfortunately, he has real life shit going on, so I'm doing it with you. And we had a grand I had a grand old time doing it. So sorry, bud. Sorry. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess that's about it for uh, the Fifth Element from 1997, directed by Luc Besson. Besson. Um, Besson. Sorry, I had to join uh, Besson. In. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's so fun to say. It is. I <laughs> um, but uh, before we go, though, uh, Harrison, would you like to let the listeners know where they can find you and all of your lovely stuff online? Sure, yeah. You can find me personally at Has Wild Everywhere, and you can find my podcast at Grief Burrito. Like the feeling and like the food. And we now have griefburrito.com if you want to check out us. Everything we do, all in one place. Very nice. Well said, sir. Thank you. Um, 
but yeah thanks again for joining me i more than happy kind of had to do it in a pinch and you stepped up i'm so glad i got you back on the show yeah man. on a on a proper episode as yeah. opposed to that tales from the shelf horse shit that we do every <laughs> month <laughs> uh, but that being said uh if you would like to catch up on any of our other uh, catching up on cinema content uh, you can find all of that collected on our website at catchinguponcinema.com uh, we also have a couple social media accounts in the form of an instagram at catching up on cinema as well as a Twitter, at Catching Cinema. So feel free to hit me up there, and I'll get back to you in a jiffy. And the show is available on pretty much any podcasting platform you can imagine, including Cephalopod. So fucking Google it. Yeah. Uh, but that being said, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us, and we will catch you next time. Bye, guys. I think that episode was pretty hot. It was pretty hot, hot, hot! <laughs> <laughs>